G'day, mate. Forty here. I'm pretty shocked by what's going on in France. I, I thought thought diversity was our greatest strength, but uh, apparently diversity is not working out too well for the French right now. Just massive numbers of riots going on in France. The police shot one black teenager, and then the nation went up in flames. So, what the heck are the French so concerned about? Steve Saylor says this is the world's most important graph. This refers to population projections coming out of sub-Saharan Africa. So they're expected to skyrocket already far more people in sub-Saharan Africa than in all of Europe. But uh, as sub-Saharan Africa triples in size in the next 80 years, many of them are going to pour into Europe. And apparently the French are not too happy about this. So Africa is going to double in population in the next uh, 40 years to something like 2.5 billion Right, that's about a billion more people than the continent has shown itself able to support. Much of Africa is French-speaking. French assume that someone coming from Africa right, will be less inclined to throw himself on the tender mercies of the Italians than to seek fraternal help from a member of his diaspora, who now number in the hundreds of thousands in the richest cities of France. So hundreds of thousands of immigrants arriving illegally every year in France, growing a country of 68 million with a shrinking native population. And about half of these immigrants are African. So for years, French have heard immigration downplayed by members of the establishment. But France just now realizing how much mass migration has changed their country. Le Figaro is running stories about the ultraviolence of immigration gangs in Marseille. A third of people in France now are either immigrants themselves or the children or grandchildren of immigrants. And... Uh, the French feel like they're losing a lot of their social welfare because the country can no longer afford it due to massive immigration. Tonight, more violence in France on the fifth day of rioting. A grenade exploding in Marseille. And more arrests, dampening hopes that the worst may be over. This after more than 1,300 people were arrested last night alone with 45,000 police officers on the streets. Hundreds of them have been injured so far, authorities say. Amid the chaos, looting overnight, hundreds of cars set on fire. And the State Department urging Americans to stay away from the protests for their safety. The unrest coming in response to Tuesday's killing by police of a 17-year-old boy identified as Niall M. of North African descent. He was shot during a traffic stop after police say he tried to drive away and officers feared for their safety. But prosecutors charging the officer preliminarily with voluntary homicide, saying the conditions to discharge a weapon hadn't been met. The killing lighting a match under long-simmering complaints about racism and discrimination by French law enforcement, an allegation the government denies. President Emmanuel Macron calling the rioting absolutely unacceptable and unjustifiable. Tonight, Macron canceling a planned state visit to Germany, pleading for calm and for parents to keep their teenagers at home. Niles, relatives, and members of the French Muslim community packed a mosque this afternoon in the Paris suburb of Nanterre for a private funeral, with a spillover crowd of hundreds more praying on the street outside. Kate? Thanks for watching our... Okay, so mass protests all across France We turn now right to now. Paris, where more than 800 people have been arrested for protesting the fatal police shooting of a 17-year-old boy. The French Interior Ministry said that over the past few days... 
Protesters have burned 2,000 cars, damaged nearly 500 buildings, looted stores, and clashed with riot officers. NBC News foreign correspondent Josh Letterman joins us now. So, Josh, tell us more about the original shooting here that sparked these protests. Well, this shooting began, as so many of these incidents do, with a traffic stop, with the prosecutor in this case saying that police... So remember what happens when the police stop conducting traffic stops, all right? You get massive amounts of bad driving. You get massive pedestrian deaths. I mean, there are two occasions this week when I could have been run over because drivers would not you know, obey the rules of the law. And this is in Beverly Hills, all right? I was walking around in Beverly Hills had to jump out of the way, had the, the right of way, effectively, to walk. But drivers were just bearing down at me at a high rate of knots. And I jumped out of the way. I, I waved my hands and cursed them. <laughs> they, they, they didn't care. So far more pedestrians are, are killed in Los Angeles than people die in traffic fatalities. So when the police back off from conducting these traffic stops, you get a massive amount of bad driving and a massive number of innocent deaths innocent traffic fatality deaths, innocent pedestrian deaths. So we get to decide in large part how many innocent people die by reckless driving, by crime, by our severity of our reaction to the crime. All right, If we lock up the super predators for a long time, we get a lot less bad driving and a lot less crime. Have alleged uh, that this 17-year-old was trying to evade being stopped by police after he was running red lights and driving in the bus lane, uh, and that when his car began to pull away from police, they felt threatened. The police were worried that his vehicle could hit uh, either them or someone else, and that that was the reason they uh, shot this fatal bullet into this 17-year-old uh, boy, Nahel, ultimately killing him. But this incident has really uh, set, poured. Now, I, I believe that everyone benefits from accurate criticism. And so there may very well be accurate, necessary criticism here that the police handled this situation in a, in a poor fashion and that more training and, and better police might uh, minimize these type of incidents. I, I obviously don't know enough about this particular incident, but I do know that in general, all of us uh, behave better when we take into consideration accurate criticism. Fuel on a fire that has been burning for some time in France, really a significant concerns about racism in the police, discrimination by police officers that many of these protesters who have been taking to the streets for many nights now have been expressing. We heard the UN High Commissioner today urging France to deal with deep issues of racism within law enforcement. The French government has come out saying that they completely reject that. And we just got a very strong statement from the French police union saying that now that's enough. They say that these protesters are savage hordes and they say that police are in combat because they are at war now, saying they're going to do everything they possibly can to bring this situation under control. Josh. Okay, from the chat, watch a video of the shooting. It's, it's quite justified. Colin Liddell apparently reviewed the video. When will Zemmour, the right wing commentator, a Sephardic Jew, when will he become the president of France? So Christopher Cordwell has an essay in the latest review of the Claremont Review of Books uh, talking about France inevitably marching towards nationalism. So the book that keeps becoming invoked as Europe is overrun by immigration is Camp of the Saints. And it is an ugly book. It is a racist book. It is perhaps also a prophetic 
an important book. Norman Shapiro in 1975, The Camp of the Saints is a novel depicting the dystopic future in which migration has destroyed the West. Although over 40 years old at this point, this book has seen frequent surges in popularity throughout the many decades since it was first published. It has long been a favorite among the anti-immigration crowd, most recently lauded by Steve Bannon, Trump administration senior policy advisor Stephen Miller, GOP congressman Steve King, and French national rally leader Marine Le Pen. It was the Syrian refugee crisis of a few years back that pushed it back into the spotlight, as many people believe the scenario of this book prophesies the reality of those events. This isn't the first time the book has been hailed as prophetic, and it's usually coupled with a call to arms when it comes to the threat of mass migration. Political figures, like the ones I mentioned previously, are quick to recommend it to anyone in earshot. This situation in Syria just didn't pop up last week. You can't say it any other way. It's been uh, almost a Camp of the Saints-type invasion. I want to look at what sort of reaction they're hoping to trigger, and what precisely this book is all about. It's a fairly well-put-together piece of propaganda, written by an individual with genuine literary talent. And in some ways, I respect the fact that it's so upfront with its biases. It allows us to cut through the dog whistles and coded languages to give us a text that really is exactly what it says it is. And what it's saying is clear right from the preface, and I want to look at that first before we dive into the plot. It begins with three different quotations, one from the Book of Revelation, one from Lawrence Durrell, and a third from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Let's start with the biblical passage the title of this book gets its name from. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and will go forth and deceive the nations which are in four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and will gather them together for the battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went over the breadth of the earth and encompassed the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The analogy here is that Satan is embodied by an armada of Indian refugees, and the camp of the saints is France, besieged by them. And more than that, fun little allusion, this book needs to be understood from a religious context. This isn't a novel strictly about immigration entering the world using a biblical quote for some flavor. This is a novel about immigration threatening the Christian world. The next two quotations tie this text to the idea of the West. My spirit turns more and more toward the West, toward the old heritage. There are, perhaps, some treasures to retrieve among its ruins. I don't know. As seen from the outside, the massive upheaval in Western society is approaching the limit beyond which it will become metastable and must collapse. Right, this is a thoughtful critique from the left of Camp of the Saints, but let's get uh, Colin Liddell here, Suicide by Cops, Triggered by French Riots. Okay. Now I'm going to take a look at the shooting of the uh, Algerian youth, quotation marks, in France that apparently triggered the widespread riots uh, that have been taking place for the last uh, four nights. And this is apparently a film taken by somebody who um, saw the incident, saw the police stop this uh, young Algerian who was in charge of an automobile and uh, decided to film it for whatever reason. So let's just see what the footage shows. First of all, a couple of coppers. He's been pulled over. One guy's pointing the gun. And the young guy ignores the police. He drives off. The shot rings out. And a little bit later, we see, we see the wreckage of the car. So we can rewind that a few times. There we go. Key moment. Now, what I'm going to do next, I'm going to stop as soon as I hear the shot. Now, if you look at that, let's try that again. If you look at that, there, if you look at that, that's the moment I stopped. That's the moment I stopped when I heard the shot. Uh, his gun is not exactly pointed in the right direction. There, his gun is pointed straight at the driver. But uh, as you can see, the car is now moving. There, so... Somewhat ambiguous at the very least. From that, I would say it's not clear what the cause of death is. Uh, he could have panicked. He could have heard the gunshot. Um, the gunshot could have been in a completely different direction. There's a lot of possibilities. To me, it kind of looks like he's just panicking and driving at breakneck speed. This is kind of confirmed, in a way, by the next part. 
Now, let's assume that he's been shot. Okay, he's got a bullet in him, and he's dead or dying. But look what happens. The car speeds up. You can hear it revving up, in fact. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, okay. Sure. He's a chillywish. He's a mock. It's a fish. No idea what this woman's been on about. Right, so, what conclusions can we draw? First of all, accidents will happen. Uh, if people have guns, accidents will happen with guns. Should the French police be armed? Probably they should, because a lot of the criminals are armed. It's a uh, very hyper-fragile society with a violent, unassimilated uh, third world population that uh, is prone to crime and feelings of victimization. Um, so you can't really get the police to walk around without weapons in France. And if they do walk around with weapons and occasionally point them at people, and those people fail to cooperate and uh, use their vehicles as a weapon, then this is a kind of very understandable situation that can happen. So even though this is a trigger for this mass crime event, on, on, on the face of it, it's not really a glaring case of injustice uh, like the, um, the BLM riots in America, uh, where you had a, a policeman filmed kneeling on the neck of this guy for a considerable period of time, which uh, was very, very bad optics, at least, whether it was justified or not. It was very, very bad optics. This is not really such bad optics. This is more a case of um, this young Algerian idiot uh, committing suicide by police. Okay, uh, Colin Liddell there. This is a book review from the left of Camp of the Saints. It's here the West and Christianity are tied to one another, and the book will speak about more than France or even Europe, expanding the West to include the United States, Australia, and even South Africa, which, at the time of this book's publication in 1972, was still living under apartheid. This book is positing that any country whose population typically has a certain racial complexion is a part of the West. And we have this handy edition from Aspe himself to remove all doubts of what he means with these quotes. I had wanted to write a lengthy preface to explain my position and show that this is no wild-eyed dream, that even if the specific action, symbolic as it is, may seem far-fetched, the fact remains that we are inevitably heading for something of the sort. We need to only glance at the awesome population figures predicted for the year 2000, i.e. 28 years from now, 7 billion people, only 900 million of whom will be white. But what good would it do? I should at least point out, though, that many of the texts I have put into my characters' mouths or pens, editorials, speeches, pastoral letters, laws, news stories, statements of every description, are, in fact, authentic. Perhaps the reader will spot them as they go by. In terms of the fictional situation I have presented, they become all the more revealing. I appreciate the brevity and transparency of the preface. It ties the first two ideas, Christianity and the West, to the third subject of interest for this book, whiteness. Or more specifically, people who are considered white. So frequently, we're asked to pretend that people talking about Western values are discussing some secular, non-racial philosophy. But a book like this dispenses with the dog whistles and gets straight to the point. It was written with the explicit political intent of protecting the white Christian world from, well, everyone who isn't white and Christian. One of the main difficulties of summarizing a book like this is that it doesn't have much of a plot and can be encapsulated in a few sentences. A huge group of Indians, primarily from Calcutta, hijack a bunch of ships and form an armada. They sail to France, and upon their arrival, destroy Western civilization. That's pretty much the whole book. This is a diagram of how much of the book is dedicated to each section. You'll notice most of this book is about the reactions to the Armada, and it seems to end shortly after the ships arrive. In fact, we never really find out how these people take over France. They just kind of show up, and the French people immediately surrender their land to them out of a sense of guilt. 
The book spends most of its time focusing on the fleet's impending arrival, highlighting the rising tension within France as fear slowly begins to increase amongst the population. It's not structured to realistically depict how a society or culture might be supplanted by another, but to stoke fear of the very idea of it being possible, based on the idea that white people and people of color simply can't live together. Okay, so I was just in uh, Sydney, Australia, plenty of people of color, yet, you know, very low crime rate, high rates of, of social trust. So it's not a matter, no, no intelligent observer would claim that uh, white people and non-white people can't live together. But uh, certain combinations seem to prove particularly explosive. I'm not saying that this is eternally fated. I'm not saying that this is, you know, marked out by the will of heaven. But there are combinations of groups that... in particular times and particular places, right, the results are absolutely explosive. Meanwhile, what's going on in the U.S.? Let's get a quick hit here from... I, uh, I want to applaud the New York Times for uh, you know, finding this scoop, that there was this other individual making, backing up what Chapley is saying. I will note that detail in the New York Times story was like 20 paragraphs in. I, I, kept, I, I kept scrolling. I'm like, man, if, if I were the uh, editor or the writer yeah. of the story, I would have put that front and center. So interesting that they chose to bury it, but nonetheless, I think they can't avoid the fact that there is something to this accusation. There are multiple people making it, and now Next, we have to hear from Weiss in right. some house fashion. The problem for journalists, Amisha, as we just saw, is you have very journalists, but certainly they're convinced that Hunter Biden should have been charged with tax felonies, which means the president's son would have done some jail time. Right. And they're making a persuasive case that, uh, I mean, you know, the IRS is not an agency that goes easy on people in general, right? That other people in the same, in the same situation would have faced uh, more serious charges. But what we really want to know, frankly, of course, is President Biden's involvement, if there is any. Right. That hasn't been if proven yet, and that's what we have to get to. But I would be, you know, I, I have questions after hearing the things Hunter Biden has said, including those WhatsApp messages and other things where he's, you know, saying, my dad's right here with me. Don't make me put dad on the phone. Like, things like that. From his perspective, it certainly sounds like uh, like trying to rope dad into something. Whether that is the case remains to be seen. Right. Well, on that very point, the, one of the texts you referred to, uh, Hunter Biden says to a Chinese executive who's trying to get money from, I'm sitting here with my father, as you said, and would like to understand why the commitment has not been fulfilled. But now, Abby Lowell, who is Hunter's attorney and a very savvy Washington operator, says in a statement that these images of this and other texts are complete fakes. Uh, they are one-sided, untested. Okay, we'll keep an eye on what's going on with Fox News. Meanwhile, I've been reading the latest edition of the Claremont Review of Books. And terrific book review on a new work by Garrett Jones. He's an economist, and he's written a book, The Culture Transplant, How Migrants Make the Economies They Moved to, a lot like the ones they left. So he shows that countries with a long history of advanced government structures and adopted agriculture earlier tend to do better. But here's an even more powerful predictor, right? The number of individuals whose ancestors lived in technologically advanced societies in the years 1500, right? These Societies tend to be European and East Asian. So the more individuals you have with ancestors from these societies, Europe and East Asia, within your country, the more likely that country will be richer and better governed. And cultural diversity, far from being a strength, right? One of the arguments by the pro-affirmative action side from the University of North Carolina, they opened their argumentation to the U.S. Supreme Court saying that diversity is our strength, but no one can point to any actual basis for claiming that diversity is our strength, right? All evidence shows that diversity makes us poorer, makes us more distrustful, makes us lonelier, and provides no tangible benefits. 
So cultural diversity inhibits economic growth and diminishes social capital. Diversity of skills is beneficial. Cultural and racial and religious diversity appears is not. So the author is no immigration skeptic. He argues for massive amounts of migration of the poor to rich countries. Why? Because of the massive benefit to those poor immigrants. All right, he makes an exception for the seven countries that lead the world in immigration, China, France, Germany, Japan, South Korea, the United Kingdom, and the United States. He says immigration to these countries might very well weaken these institutions and depress their economic innovation, innovation upon which the world depends. But I remember Russell Roberts, a real uh, free trade, free movement of people's uh, libertarian, who was my professor at UCLA. I took two economics classes from him, and he does the podcast Econ Talk. I remember him talking about the advantages of free trade with China, and he, he made the point that he was just as interested in the welfare of the Chinese as he was as interested in the welfare of Americans. So that is a very typical bias of the economist class, all right? They look at things in terms of utility, and because there will be a massive utility for poor people who move to successful countries, that that is worth the harm that these people will do to Western cohesion. So immigrants and their descendants do not absorb the cultures into which they migrate. Instead, they will retain the tendencies of their homelands, least those tendencies related to economic growth. So if the only thing you know about each nation on the planet was the fraction of that nation with ancestors of European descent, and you did the best job you could trying to predict an average modern income per person just using that one fact alone, you'd be able to predict two-thirds of all global income difference. Now, there's even a better tool for predicting global income differences, and that's national IQs. So that, that is about 75% accurate. But uh, people matter far more than governments or institutions. So different people apparently have different gifts, even when it comes to economics. So deep cultural determinants transmitted by families, right? Different peoples are the most powerful predictors of national wealth and sound government, right? So it's not so much that wealth is generated by rational wealth-maximizing responses to incentives. It's that people of certain cultural lineages just happen to make better societies, now, does uh, cultural diversity promote economic growth and good governance? No. It shows that cultural diversity degrades social trust, leads to weaker civil society, lonelier people, less effective government. And it uh, lights the flames of racial and ethnic conflict and religious conflict. So increased cultural diversity weakens countries economically, it degrades social trust, it degrades civil society, and raises the always prevalent threat of civil strife. Now, Jones advocates massive immigration to wealthy countries on the grounds that the lives of the immigrants would be dramatically improved. But uh, the massive immigration of these immigrants, Camp of the Saints style, would not massively improve the quality of lives of the people who already live here. So he asserts without evidence that any harm to existing citizens will be outweighed by the improved lives of the immigrants. But how does he know that? Degrading, degrading civil society is an enormous tax on those of us who live here. People who are less connected, people who are less active in church groups, synagogues, sports clubs, poetry clubs, people who have fewer friends live dramatically diminished lives. This tax is hard to measure, but it exists. And immigration 
degrades those institutions central to our happiness by playing uncollective action. So consider marriage, right? Western countries have by and large supported monogamous marriage, but that is rare from a historical perspective. So 85% of societies in the anthropological record allow polygamy. So monogamy is largely a Greek and Roman invention, and thanks to the Jews adopted and promoted by the Christian church. So monogamy is a social norm, decreases the spousal age gap, fertility, and gender inequality. It shifts men's efforts from seeking more wives to paternal investment, right, investing in their kids, increasing their savings, investing in their children, economic productivity. So it reduces intra-household conflict, leads to lower rates of child neglect, abuse, accidental death, and homicide. Monogamy provides many social goods, but it is fragile because it requires high-status men to forego the multiple wives that they would have in polygamous societies. So as we get more and more uh, Muslim immigration and third-world immigration, we have more and more pressures to open up Western societies to polygamy, which is a major theme in Michel Huelbach's phenomenon, the novel Submission, came out in 2015, about the Islamification of France. High-status men came to accept Islamification because of the temptation of having 17-year-old second wives. Lacking a deep connection to Christianity or to traditional Western values, the French men easily succumb to this sexual temptation. Norms can shift, which will make society poorer and most individuals less happy. And uh, what about the desire of uh, citizens of first world countries? They don't want unchecked immigration. Like, how would Iceland, you know, benefit from unchecked immigration? So the left and libertarians generally resent the ideas of national identity, national community, social cohesion, and social trust. Right? The elites want to be able to hire programmers, gardeners, nannies of whatever nationality for the cheapest possible price. And if an externality of their lifestyle is a country diminished in civil society, diminished in happiness, leaving people looking for meaning without any kind of shared social script with weaker institutions that are no longer capable of supporting the whole show, well, then obviously you're going to get an absolute disaster, which seems to be what we're heading towards. Right, back to a left-wing critique of the campus. You could States. mistakenly assume here is that the book would therefore focus on what the book eventually calls the last chance armada. And in a way it does, but not through the eyes of any of the one million Indians on board the ships. Rather, it spends most of its time focusing on the reactions to the fleet, specifically the reactions from characters in France, though we also hear voices in Australia, South Africa, Russian, and a few other nations. The vast majority of characters with names, speaking lines, and character arcs are white. Typically, the Indian people who make up the Last Chance Armada are described like this. Just what should one call that numberless, miserable mass? The enemy? The horde? The invasion? The third world on the march? And the closest we get to a named character from that group is their charismatic leader, a man only known as the Turd Eater. This man who, yes, literally lives up to that name, once worked making briquettes for kindling out of excrement. He somehow has the ability to charm his fellow Indians into action, something which had apparently been impossible before, and he convinces them to board boats and sail, eventually, to France. On his shoulders he carries his child, which is given special focus, almost as if this child has special powers that convince all the other Indians to follow his father. The child is described like this. At the bottom, two stumps, then an enormous trunk, all hunched and twisted and bent out of shape. No neck, but a kind of extra stump, a third one in place of a head, and a bald little skull with two holes for eyes and a hole for a mouth, but a mouth that was no mouth at all. No throat, no teeth, just a flap of skin over his gullet. 
The monster's eyes were alive, and they stared straight ahead, high over the crowd, frozen forward in a relentless gaze, except, that is, when his pariah father would wave him bodily back and forth. Yeah, so that's the kid. Once the million-strong group of Indians have commandeered the ships, we only get brief glimpses of what these people are like, often through the eyes of white people who get close enough to get a good look. The Indians refuse aid packages and instead wallow in excrement, living in a non-stop orgy that doesn't pay attention to age or infirmity. The book doesn't present them as people, more like an unthinking mass, acting on base impulses, hideous to the senses. What's noted most often is the horrible smell coming from these ships. The book describes it as so powerful, people could almost see it. The story of the Armada and its eventual arrival in France triggers similar uprisings around the world, from other armadas setting sail from Jakarta to an invasion of Chinese peasants into Siberia to riots in New York City by black Americans. The Last Chance Armada is presented not as the last chance for these Indian refugees, but the last chance for the predominantly white nations to stand up against the impending invasions of people of color. And that really is the extent to which people of color are represented in this book directly, with a few notable exceptions I'll be discussing later on. And it also provides a clear understanding of what this book is about, and what it's trying to say about people of color. It's presenting them very explicitly and very clearly as a subhuman threat. They aren't people to be reasoned with, but rather a large mass that will corrupt everything around it. The rest of the characters can be split into three different camps, and provide a nice framework for understanding the book's broader commentary on society. There are the people who oppose the Last Chance Armada, the people who support the Last Chance Armada, and the women who are just kind of there. So let's start with the closest thing we have to heroes of this narrative, what most people would consider violent psychopaths, the guys who see the impending arrival of the Armada as a threat. Each represents a different element of society, and when the Armada arrives, they all end up living together in the south of France. Okay, hard times call for hard men. And sometimes to do hard things, you will naturally tend to denigrate outgroups, even regard them as subhuman. Now, in certain circumstances, that is adaptive if you're fighting for the survival of your civilization, of your people, of your family, right? Viewing anyone who threatens your family, your loved ones, your people as subhuman may very well give you the strength to do what is necessary to do. Now, while you're living in a relatively safe and prosperous country, this kind of hatred of, of outgroups does not serve you. But uh, different situations determine, you know, what, what's a more adaptive and less adaptive approach. Just like we all have different personality templates, right? We have rage. When, when two drivers almost ran me over this week, I exhibited rage. I was in rage for 15, 20 seconds, and then I had kind of the aftermath of rage for like up to an hour afterwards. And I, I'm thinking about how I should handle that. Do I really want to get enraged every time someone is about to or almost runs me over. Uh, maybe I should uh, just give way with, with more grace and uh, you know leave, leave it up to the police to handle that because the effect of rage on me is not necessarily in my best interest. The other thing I'm noticing more and more as you just walk around, more and more people are walking around looking down at their cell phones. And people, when they're driving, they're more and more on their cell phones. So that seems to be deteriorating the quality of public life, of, of driving, of the overall human experience. But tough times do call for tough people with really nasty attitudes. In a small commune they decide to call The Village. This village's home base is the home of Galgues, a professor of French literature. He's the first character we meet when the book opens as he awaits the imminent arrival of the Last Chance Armada. Before a very lengthy flashback explaining how this all happened, 
Calgues is confronted by a young man who has run to the south to welcome the Indian people aboard the ship. It's through this encounter we are first introduced to the two sides in this debate. The first speaker is the unnamed youth, the second is Calgues, who has just asked why this young man has decided to start looting right before the arrival of the Armada. Why? Because I've learned to hate all this. Because the conscience of the world makes me hate all this. That's why. Now fuck off. You're beginning to get on my ass. If you insist, there's really no point in staying. You're not making very much sense. I'm sure you have an excellent brain, but I do think it's been a trifle muddled. Someone has done a fine job. Note how Calgues is calm, collected, and speaks like an adult, but the young man lashes out wildly and without reason. This is how both sides are typically presented in the novel. One side, all emotion and rage. The other side, resigned, yet wise. The choice in words shows you how this isn't just a difference in mindset, but in how they express themselves. It also reveals how in the context of this book, the fight and debate are already over. France has given in to these new ways of thinking, and the old, supposedly superior, traditions, represented by Calgues, are being forgotten. So Andy No is doing a great job covering what's going on in in France. So let's uh, take a quick scroll through his Twitter timeline. All right. Truck driver stopped on the road by rioters who force him from the vehicle. He's terrified and crying. Whoever recorded and shared the video on social media put an Islamic song as the soundtrack. Yeah, terrifying. Okay, as race riders set fire to numerous buildings, including libraries, grocery stores, shopping centers, town halls, police stations, infrastructure, some of them have exploded. Overnight, as race riots descended into the fifth day in France, the family home of the mayor of Paris suburb was attacked. Riders set a car on fire, rammed it into his home, trying to burn it down. His, his wife and young children were inside. The riders then attacked her and the children as they attempted to flee, giving her a broken leg. Over 700 riot suspects were arrested last night. The rioters are continuing to loot, set fire to buildings as a revenge for the police shooting death of a French Algerian youth. So I'm very much on the side of uh, law enforcement, as you could imagine. All right, CCTV captures rioters trying to tear apart the fencing put around a city hall. The conservative mayor had his family home targeted overnight in an arson attack as his wife and young children slept inside. Scenes mirror the 2020 Black Lives Matter Antifa riots in the U.S. as organized mass mobs tore apart barricades to try to destroy buildings. Meet the Socialist Workers' Party, one of the nastiest participants in the left-wing riot. Right, they participate in the destruction of theft of public property and encourage leftists to attack conservative students. This is going on in the United Kingdom. Shopping center in France, completely destroyed in these race riots. Parts of central London left completely trashed by attendees of the London Pride event on Saturday. Now, if this was a tea party event, right, it would, they wouldn't be leaving behind trash. If these were uh, members of some kind of Japanese group, right, they probably would have picked up their own trash. Portland Antifa member Alexander Dial uses the moniker Beta Cuck is now being accused by female comrades of being a sex pest. 
characteristic of weak beta men is they use violence to make up for their shortcomings and pretend to be an ally. Right after being accused of being a sex pest, he shows up by himself to counter an American flag-waving event in Oregon. City, Oregon. The 1776. Welcome to the pedophile show. Pedophile show starting this motherfucker right here. That one. forever is a whole lot longer than 1776. You fucking idiot. Good for you. Good you for know, me? Yeah, good for you. Know, and that rainbow, we're taking it back. Dog, that's yeah. God's rainbow. No, don't, don't fucking tell her. Shut up, you dumb fucking ass. No, no, fuck you. Don't touch my no. stuff. Don't touch yeah. my stuff. Yeah, you touch the shit, you're going to get your ass on the ground. No, I ain't going to fucking shut. Okay, he tried to go on their side to be an ally. They didn't want him. From what I heard online, that he's already kind of assaulted a few comrades, from what I understand. Yeah. Let's see if his... The pride community likes that behavior or not here. Cities in France have been burning for days in these race riots. Riders have been stealing construction equipment, using them to destroy light poles mounted with cameras. Right, they've been looting grocery stores and then showing off what they've been able to steal. Video of the Islamic funeral for the 17-year-old French Algerian who was shot dead. His death has uh, sparked ongoing race riots across France. France President Emmanuel Macron criticized for attending an Elton John concert while Paris burns with his lovely 75-year-old wife. Okay, we'll keep an eye on breaking news coming out of uh, France. Uh, here's a video on the Camp of the Saints. And there's another passage that highlights what sort of traditions Gauguess is wistful for. Still, had I been born with Actius once upon a time, I think I would have reveled in killing my share of Hun. And with the likes of Charles Martel and Godfrey of Bouillon and Baldwin the Leper, I'm sure I would have shown a certain zeal in poking my blade through Arab flesh. I might have fallen before Byzantium, fighting by Constantine Dragassus's side, but God, what a horde of Turks I would have cut down before I gasped my last. These aren't just historical victories of white people over people of color, they're also framed as religious struggles defending old Christian institutions. Reflections on the past are generally pretty positive towards Christian rulers or crusaders who are responsible for the death of non-Christians, especially non-Christians of color, and the expansion of territory controlled by the Christian world. But Calgas also gets contemporary for us. Like the war between the states, when my side is defeated, I now join the Ku Klux Klan to murder myself some blacks. A nasty business, I admit. Not quite so bad with Kitchener, though skewering Mahdi Muslims' fanatics, spilling their guts. But the rest is all current events. A sad little joke. Most of it has already slipped my mind. Perhaps I've done my bit. Killing a pinch of Oriental at the Berlin Gates. A dash of Viet Cong here, of Mau Mau there. A touch of Algerian rebel to boot. At worst, some leftist or other finished off in a police van. Or some vicious Black Panther. Yes, it's all become so terribly ugly. What Calgues mourns is how white supremacist violence has scaled back. Calgues is able to live his violent fantasy now by murdering the youth he was speaking to with a shotgun he had nearby, and he more or less stays put until 40 chapters later when all the other anti-armada characters magically find their way to his home. 
Not all of these characters are as resigned to defeat as Calgues, though. A journalist named Jules Machefel is much feistier and is constantly railing against the left-wing outlets that dominate the media landscape in France. His feelings about the Armada are what you would expect. This is an exchange he has with the government official who wants to send aid to the Armada amid concerns they departed India without enough food and water. Monsieur Machefel, minister replied, Your question is revolting. Do you ask a drowning man where he was going and why before you pull him out of the water? Do you throw him back in if, assuming the worst, he admits he was swimming to your private beach to break into your cottage? No, you pull him out and hand him over to the police, Machefel answered. With a million thieves pulled out of the water, how many police do you think you can muster? And he has similar feelings of violence towards journalists he disagrees with. In this case, two radio personalities named Wilsberg and Dufault, who speak positively about the last chance armada. No, Machefel went on, still sign, no chance that Wilsberg or Dufault will find a hired killer or two in their bedrooms tonight. No such luck. The right has no killers anymore. We lost all we had defending our last few colonies. What a pity! So he's a lovely guy. His story is pretty simple in that he hits one note repeatedly. He rages at the government and other journalists, at first concerned over the impending arrival of the army. Look, there's a time you need killers on your side, right? When you're in a life and death situation, right? When there's such an intense conflict of interest between groups, all right, that it inevitably leads to war, then you need killers on your side. When you're in a safe and prosperous situation, all right, you don't want to be unleashing killers. Armada, but then he resigns himself to sit back and watch, all the while continuing to rage at the government and journalists internally. It's somehow more boring than that already sounds. When he goes silent, the former objects of his ridicule, when he was doing it out loud, start looking towards him, expecting this marginalized journalist to eventually resume his screeds against the foreigners. But he stays silent. Through Machefel, we learn how the media has been corrupted, driven there by capitalists who have seen big money in making left-wing content to a generation brainwashed with those ideas. It's not very hard to see why such a narrative is so attractive to someone on the right, and it's one that is still present today, all the while betraying a real ignorance that it's not that the rest of the world is being brainwashed, it's that these old-fashioned ideas are losing their place in society because no one agrees with them. Although if you're someone like Machefel, it might feel like they're being brainwashed when you simply don't understand what a huge racist jerk you are. There's one plot point in the story where the Last Chance Armada is met with supplies, sent by a coalition of celebrities, artists, European nations, and the Vatican. The Armada, instead of slowing down to pick up those supplies, decides to smash through them. Machefel learns the truth and tries to report it, but the rest of the media ignores the testimony of someone who was there, insisting that it must have been an accident. It reads like the perfect script for one of the mainstream media conspiracy theories so well-loved on the right, one that can only be built on the idea that a fleet of one million Indians would sooner murder white people than accept any aid after a month on the ocean. A critique of the media is valuable, and the mainstream media's flaws are worth discussing, but basing it around such a ludicrous premise makes it difficult to have a serious discussion. If anything, it's working backwards from the assumption that people of color are thoughtless monsters and constructing a scenario in which the media tries to hide this supposed fact out of some sort of imagined white guilt. It's all horribly contrived and completely unconvincing, unless you're someone who already believes in these sorts of conspiracies. While reading, I had assumed Machefel was being set up to be the main character. He was introduced relatively early in the plot and instantly became very prominent, but he vanishes as the book moves to other topics and only appears again to join the village in later chapters, standing as a representative for the media. Another prominent character is Colonel Constantine Dragassus, whose name is a reference to the last Byzantine emperor who died at the fall of Constantinople in 1453. The Dragassus of the Camp of the Saints is similarly there to stand against another invasion, though instead of the Ottomans crashing through the walls of Constantinople, he's fighting against the unarmed refugees of India sailing to France. So, uh, Ron DeSantis has apparently released an anti-LGBTQ ad. I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens. If Caitlyn Jenner were to walk into Trump Tower and want to use the bathroom, you would be fine with her using any bathroom she chooses. That is correct. In the future, can transgender women compete in this universe? Yes. Make America great again. Spike!
horrifying. It really has shut down drag. Just produced some of the harshest, most draconian laws that literally threaten trans existence. Congratulations, Ron Sanders. Mission accomplished. You win. That's an amazing ad. Is this ad the Governor end of his Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida career? is unimaginable. And his latest policy is a modern-day book burn. <laughs> now, the most cherished books of our time can no longer be read by Florida children. Oh, Why? No. Because Ron DeSantis has censored them. Can you believe it? Classics like P is for Penis, Whore and Peace, and Moby's Dick have been pulled from the shelves of Florida public schools. Does your second grader want to read Charlotte's webcam? Well, thanks to Ron DeSantis, that book has been banned. Did you ever imagine a day would come when children couldn't read titles like Atlas Pegged or Catcher in the Guy? Even Pitcher in the Guy was taken from the library. Welcome to Ron DeSantis's Florida, a place once known for being the most erotically shaped state is now left with zero erotic graphic novels for its kindergartners. And now, in a shameless act of partisan politics, DeSantis is even going after President Biden's beloved pop-up book, Shower Time. So we must act. Please, vote Democrat. But in the meantime, call the governor's office and say, you're doing me raw, is another book we demand back on the shelves. With your help, we'll put indispensable titles like The Grapes of Ass, To Kill a Cockingbird, and hundreds of others back onto our kids' reading our children are the future, and we Florida Democrats will never stop fighting for what turns us on. Paid for by the Global Reading Opportunities Outreach Movement. <laughs> oh, that's 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 fun, man. <laughs> Our children not being able to read gay porn. So sad, so sad. But Caitlyn Jenner were to walk into Trump. Okay, a lot of good stuff there. Right, uh, John Mearsheimer on the war in Let Ukraine. Let me preface my comments by saying we, we don't have a whole heck of a lot of information on what happened. Uh, and uh, one has to be cautious not to, uh, not to be too categorical in making statements about what's going on here because new evidence may come out uh, that changes the Talking about what's going on with the Ukraine offensive. The way we think about this. But based on the evidence I see, I find it hard to believe that this is going to weaken Putin. Uh, first of all, it appears to be the case that Prigozhin was the only senior person who was involved uh, in this coup. Uh, there's no evidence that I see that anyone else went along with him or intended to go along with him uh, and just did not have an opportunity to do so. Uh, he looks pretty much like a lone wolf who's a very powerful person uh, in the Russian context. And given all the military power he had behind him, he was in a position to cause a lot of trouble. And he did cause a lot of trouble, but he did it pretty much by himself. This is not to say he didn't have some of his own troops behind him, but it appears that he did not have any officers from the Wagner group who supported him. And there do not appear to be any other uh, key figures in the Russian policy elite who were with him. Uh, so. 
he's not that great a threat by himself. That's point one. Point two is the end result of this is that uh, the Wagner group is going to be neutralized. Uh, and uh, Prigogin is going to be neutralized. He's no longer going to be a force. And the Wagner group is no longer going to be an independent variable in, in the Russian context. It's going to be brought under control of the Ministry of Defense. And this will work to Putin's advantage. Just to put this in more general terms, Glenn, uh, when countries go to war, they usually find in the beginning that there are lots of kinks in the system. Because basically what you're doing is you're taking a peacetime military uh, that is designed in part for operating in peacetime, not so much in wartime, and you're sending it off to battle. And that military is invariably going to have some big problems at first. And eventually those problems will be worked out. At least in most cases, those problems will be worked out. Uh, the system will be rationalized and the military will be more effective a year or two after the war than it was initially uh, going into the war. I mean, if you look at the Red Army when it was attacked uh, on June 22nd, 1941, and then you compare it to the Red Army uh, in June of 1943, over the course of those two years, uh, that Red Army was rationalized and was a much more effective fighting force. Same thing is true, by the way, with the American military going into World War II after Pearl Harbor. Uh, large numbers of general officers and senior officers uh, were canned because they proved to be incompetent in wartime, even though they had been quite successful uh, in peacetime. So anyway, all of this is a way of saying that over the course of this war, since February 22nd, 1941, uh, the Russians have made a number of major adjustments uh, that have increased their fighting power. Uh, they've increased the size of the army. Uh, they've fundamentally altered their tactics on the battlefield. And you saw this uh, in the battle for Bakhmut. They performed much better in Bakhmut than they did early in the war. Uh, so I think what's going to happen here is that the chain of command uh, in the Russian military is going to be rationalized. Uh, I think that the end result will be that it will be a more highly efficient fighting force, uh, and it's less likely in the future uh, that Putin will run into a problem, or to put it in slightly different terms, the Ministry of Defense will run into a problem uh, with a character like Prigogin. Uh, it's not impossible, but I think it's much less likely now. So my bottom line is that I think, based on the available evidence, that Putin is likely to come out of this strengthened, not weakened. So one of the focal points of your article, and I have a few more questions only, um, is that you... Okay, let's uh, check in with Fox News here, talking about what's going on with France, massive rioting, disruption, diminished social trust. What the heck? Thousands taken into custody last week. French President Emmanuel Macron postponed a scheduled trip to Germany, an important trip, because of the mass unrest. Trey Yingst is live in Paris with more on this. Trey, to you. Molly, good afternoon. Police in France are bracing for another night of unrest following a week of violence that's seen more than 2,000 people arrested. The rioting in the suburbs of Paris began on Tuesday when a teenager who is French-Algerian was shot and killed by police during a traffic stop. Video of the shooting circulated online, prompting thousands of people to loot stores, burn buildings, and torch cars. The violence continued overnight as rioters rammed the house of a suburban mayor and lit the home on fire with his family still inside. 
French authorities have deployed an additional 45,000 police in an effort to quell the violence. And French President Emmanuel Macron was forced to cancel a state visit to Germany. Last night, heavy clashes occurred in the southern French city of Marseille and in the city of Lyon. These cities do have a large population of North Africans, many of whom say they are disproportionately targeted by French police and have historically strained relationships with law enforcement. Now, here in Paris, we have seen people downtown going about their day, tourists throughout the city, but there is a real sense here by French authorities that these suburbs could be a powder keg and like the city hall behind me could be attacked once again by rioters. And Molly. Trey, what has been the president, President Macron's response to all of this unrest? Well, French President Emmanuel Macron has had to take the unrest very seriously. On Thursday, he did attend an Elton John concert taking place in Paris, which drew some controversy as fires burned throughout the city. But he's also had to call three security meetings, emergency meetings with top officials here in the French capital to try to develop a plan to address these riots that are now taking place not just in Paris, but across the country. So far, we have seen that increase in police forces and special forces in the streets. There are uh, police officers in cities across the country, again, bracing for more riots tonight. But the French president has had to cancel a state visit to Germany, and he also had to return quickly from an EU meeting in Brussels on Friday. Molly? Trey, you, we know you have the experience, the situational awareness. Uh, we're wishing you and your crew safety there as things get dark later on tonight. Trey Yingston, Paris. Thank you. Brian? Absolutely. The U.S. attorney who brought charges against... Okay. Uh, a lot of people having problems with uh, Twitter. Richard Hanania, Michael Tracy did a Twitter space called uh, Data Usage Limit uh, Reached. Pretty see my own subscriber tweets i looked at my profile in one uh, it's so weird sometimes google chrome what website are you talking about askjeeves.com uh, no uh, yeah yeah Visa. okay this is uh michael tracy you can hear that was michael tracy just speaking uh being interrupted and questioned by richard Hanania. yeah we're going back yeah this website is apparently falling you know it's falling apart at the seams uh the uh yeah i mean there's all like the, my subscriptions i can see them on my chrome but not on safari or vice versa uh but you know, I'm fine. Maybe I didn't look at 6,000 tweets today, uh, but people seem to be having all kinds of problems. Oh, please. Uh, you know, I, don't, I just don't buy it. I mean, I'll accept that there could be some problems. I don't really know. I didn't personally experience them myself. I would have no understanding that there was a problem or allegedly, allegedly a problem if I hadn't been told about it. Um, because I, I think it's affecting people on their phones mostly because I, you know, on a typical day, if I use Twitter, it'll be on my uh, computer um, rather than my phone. And my impression is that the restriction is affecting more people on their phone. So since I'm, I guess, considered an elderly person by uh, internet standards, Using my laptop as my primary uh, Twitter uh, access point maybe uh, exempts me from this. But I don't know. I mean, people have been, you know, this, and I also explained to you, but people have been uh, desperately searching for anything that they can uh, hype up into an indictment of Musk for months now. And has it ever panned out? I mean, like, the people who were the most hysterical and exuded the most certitude last fall about the imminent demise of Twitter, because I'm supposed to take them seriously now about RIP Twitter because there was a rate limit, like, adjustment that I'm sure he's going to increasingly uh, gonna keep, um, you know, tweaking. Maybe it's just the, what I see, uh, my, my feed. But my feed was a different group of people, like right-wingers. Like one guy, this is such a funny funny thing. He's, he's like some, you know, some right-wing uh, uh, influencer. And he's like, oh, just the day after the Civil War starts in France, uh, Twitter, we can't use Twitter anymore. Isn't that convenient? So I've seen like all these right-wing people like turn on Musk. And, like, I, think I, I think the same guy made the same point to me. Or, or, or if not, there's like a weirdly 
significant group of guys who are making the same dopey point. I'm sure they, I'm sure they are. So I saw these regular guys like Cat Turd. Uh, you know, Trump has, I mean, Musk has lost his friend Cat Turd. Uh, so yeah, they are, uh, they're mad. You see these people, they, they, you know, Twitter is just, it's interesting that their grievance with Twitter was because it censored them. Now it's like there's a possibility they, they might not be able to use Twitter as much as they like. And that's just like driving them crazy. Like Twitter is, is sort of life to these people. If you have a habit of mind where you are... Okay, let's get a little bit more coverage of what's going on in the French riots. This is from the British Talk uh, TV. Violence sweeping across France for the night in a row. Oh, there's no talk on this video. Oh, where's the talk? Where's the explanation? Nope. Nope, nope. Come on, guys. I need high-quality conversation here. So just sort of cavalier about drawing baseless inferences and connections between disparate events. Like, you need to probably revisit the fundamentals of your like, cognition. Like, you have a fundamental cognitive distortion that you're suffering from. Oh, because it happened to be on the same day that, or actually not even the same day, the rise in France started like three days ago at this point. That, that must explain why <laughs> yeah. Musk decided to institute some... <laughs> you know, mechanistic change on Twitter, like, based on what? Your own, like, ridiculous inference that you pulled out of your ass? I don't care about your stories anymore. They, they officially, yeah, they officially, uh, uh, they officially pegged the start of the Civil War yesterday. <laughs> yeah, oh, there's a Civil War in France. Like, is there other armies marching? I mean, <laughs> well, no, it had to be yesterday. Robespierre has been raised from the dead. <laughs> no, good times, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, Musk is, you know, this is going to be like everything else where, like, he does something, people get bad. And then he says, no. but you know what, 6,000 tweets in a day. Are you, are you paying for this blue check? You've got the blue check? Yes, you do. Yeah, I do. Uh, Which so, I started yes, paying for, by the way, in February of 2022, well before there was even any notion that Musk was going to buy Twitter. Uh-huh. So what, what did you get? Like, because I saw that there was an ability. First of all, it was $2 a month, which, I mean, I'm not the richest guy in the world, but frankly, I can spare $2 a month. Like, it's not going to uh, break my bank. Um, and I use Twitter a lot. Like, I know people, like, almost don't want to admit that they use Twitter a lot or that they kind of uh, assign value to it. But I don't see why. It's almost like a self-contradiction. Um, but I saw at that time that people could post, you could post longer videos than two minutes and 50 seconds if you had this uh, service. So I got yeah, for, I, for that, yeah. just for that. Initially, just to kind of test out. And then, okay, if I want to occasionally post a longer video, now I can. Great. Yeah, so, yeah, this all, I mean, this will blow over these people. Yeah, it's silly. You're right. What do you, uh, what else is going what do you what, yeah. I didn't even really mean to get engrossed in this whole France right thing, because frankly, I feel like I'm at an information deficit. I don't have adequate information to make any even preliminary uh, inferences. Um, and if covering the 2020 riots in the U.S. taught me anything, it's that, I mean, these are the prime events for um, biased uh, kind of interpretation. And you can't trust what you're getting algorithmically filtered to you as, anything close to the full story. So how, how am I going to weigh in on what's going on in France? And I'm gonna speak so, but, but, but I saw one video, but I saw like this, uh, a, a string of people making these viral tweets where, where one video, because uh, it was apparently some, you know, writers uh, setting fire to a library in Marseille, um, that that's, that shows how this is like another instance of radical Islamists plundering the West, like it's a big devious plan. I'm just saying, so first of all, how do you even know the people in this video are, are Muslim? Maybe they are, maybe they are. I don't know. You can't even tell. But I think, I mean, I think a lot of them are Muslim background, but there is zero think, evidence that this is like exactly. Islamists. It, it, it's just, it's just, I mean, that's just. Do you think every 17-year-old every of like a quote-unquote Islamist background, meaning like they, their you know, grandfather was from Algeria, would only riot due to radical Islam? I mean, you're just an idiot if you think that. Or, and or you're still kind of regurgitating Republican propaganda from 15 years ago that you never were able to fully detach from? Yeah, yeah. This was the thing that have, there was a. I think this comes down to race much more than religion. Religion is an expression of culture. 
And culture is what happens when you combine particular people with particular environments. Book by Mark Stein, America, Alone. The, yeah, the, I remember this was like the last big riots, the big, big ones were 2005. And then the conservatives in America, this was like uh, uh, right after the Iraq war uh, started. And they were like really into it. They're like, oh, France wanted to fight with us, you know, in Iraq. They're a bunch of, you know, uh, they're a bunch of wimps. And now, like now the Islamists are like burning down their cities and they can't do anything about it. Right. So this was like, yeah, you're right. This is this is muscle memory. Right. <laughs> Even though it's been, 80, it's been like 18 years. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know. It just doesn't impoverish your understanding of just, I guess, life is, or just how to how to analyze any phenomena in the observable universe. That you would automatically assume that because like somebody is Algerian, or even just Algerian descent, like French Algerians can be several generations removed from Algeria at this point, um, that they have to be motivated by radical. It's not really, I, mean, I know this like might sound like a bit of a, a cheap way of putting it, but like seriously, have you ever met or spoken to a Muslim? I'm not saying you have to like sing kumbaya with the whole world and like endorse every di- you know, corporate diversity dogma, but you know if you're going to opine on how supposedly there exists something. Uh, uh, like this unified quote unquote Islamic culture, it might benefit you like now and then to maybe like interact with somebody who you're trying to characterize. Just a you know crazy idea. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting, and, and they just they just uh well they just have this pro Muslim stuff, right? You've seen this thing where like they're happy that Muslims fight LGBT in schools. Who's right? who's, happy? <laughs> who's happy about that? Well, I mean, oh, okay. well, well, most people don't want to fight explicitly on racial grounds, so they they try to provide some kind of ideology or religious basis for what's going on. The, the conflict in Northern Ireland, for example, between Catholics and Protestants wasn't over Christian theology. Right? Religion served as a cover for a conflict of interests of different distinct peoples. Okay, so these idiot, idiot uh, online right I think there's a lot of overlap between the, yeah, the people who think this is Islamist violence. Uh, I don't know, maybe there isn't enough overlap. The only people I've seen say Islamists, like, you know, they're really not... Here's what they're conflating. I mean, there was a phenomenon which seemed to have ebbed recently, but for a little while there were these um, cells of genuinely radicalized Muslims in that they ascribed to some version of Islamic doctrine and had a radical enough interpretation of it that they were extreme zealots and would even go so far as to organize, you know, suicide bombing attacks throughout different parts of Europe. I mean, there was the Bataclan, um, you know, mass killing in in France in 2015. Um, It's happened, but, you know, (laughs) if you you are so uh, intent on making these overbroad extrapolations that you conflate, like, legitimate terrorist cells, which are infinitesimally an infinitesimally small uh, part of the wider population with, you know, just general kind of uh, youths in maybe Muslim uh, heavy areas coming out and kind of rampaging in the streets. Uh, you're just, I don't know, you're either willfully deluding yourself or there's some hang up that you have that is causing you to like be proud of how idiotic you sound. Well, yeah, the, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, we can talk about right wing idiots all day, uh, but like what's the, uh, you know, do you have what do you make of the, what do you make of the, uh, the French stuff uh, overall in Germany? Well, you said it's hard to have an opinion. I don't know. It doesn't seem that complicated. It seems like it seems very. I mean, we know that it was like a some kid was shot, and then like these people like started burning down, you know, burning down cars and like rioting. Right? It's not a very stuff like Russia Gate where you have to like get into like, <laughs> detail of, of what happened. Right? Well, I, a, what I found out when I decided that I had to go around the country for over two months um, in 2020 and like granularly cover like the mechanics of how these riots work in various places is that it is almost like Russia Gate. I mean, it's really not as simple as people think. There, there are certain trends or patterns, sure. Um, but there, like, 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 like for instance, a lot of people still think that. Uh, they were race riots in 2020. I mean, people were just tweeting that at the end early today. Like, don't I remember? Yeah, th- th- this is where I think Tracy just goes off, off the rails. The 2020 Black Lives Matter riots were motivated by racial considerations. Does not mean that all the participants in, in the riots were, were, were of one particular race. But to deny that the, the George Floyd riots were based you know, largely on discontent about racial justice and... Uh, corrupt uh, policing, right? It's overwhelmingly a left-wing racial-based rioting. It wasn't Republicans, by and large, who were going out on the streets rioting. And I think Tracy is just 
wrong here? The devastating legacy of the 2020 race riots. They really aren't. I mean, the instigators of the riot, the most extreme riots is actually I mean, the arson attacks. This is uh, based in you know, mostly I'm going to base this on uh, Minneapolis, which is where the riots originated, which I spent a lot of time at. It, it was the, the there was a, an, a white ideological minority who instigated the kind of highest profile provocative riot action like arson. Um, and in fact, much of the time, the, these white anarchists who flooded into the. Yeah, but they did it on the basis of racial justice. The city who were organized and were ideological and actually insurrectionary in, in the way that people try to claim genderist people were. Um, they, they, they instigated the riot often. And then once there was a deplete, once there was a vacuum for city resources, then you had like a local non-ideological blacks um, uh, who, uh, who kind of uh, opportunistically riot. Yeah, okay. That's um, right. And people don't even understand that distinction still today, which I think is kind of necessary if you actually want to know what happened. I think if you just watch like Hannity, what would he tell you? He'd tell you there's these, uh, I don't know, Hannity would say, but like, I don't know, I think the typical right wing view is, yeah, it's, it's like uh, Antifa. And uh, yeah, I mean, people in inner cities. I don't think that's like a very, like, uh, you know, I don't think that's very. Uh, you, does, is it a typical right wing view to assume that the 2020 riots were race riots? Uh, I hear the lot. Well, I mean, look, I, what, was the, what was the percentage of people uh, when they were arrested? What, do we have any data? I would be shocked if, you know, blacks were the overwhelming majority of those arrested. Would you, would you be surprised? If that um, it, it depends. But in Minneapolis, like on the first uh, couple nights, I think it was, I, I don't know that it was, it was necessarily. Uh, majority black. I think it was, it was maybe it was a majority, but if it was, it was like a plurality. Or uh, maybe there was another. Yeah, I just think uh, Michael Tracy not making a lot of sense there. All right, let's get a little analysis of what's going on here in the French riots with, from uh, CNN. With this tragic incident, of course, that's fueled this anger that Melissa was talking about and this rage. Uh, it's fair, I think it's fair to say that there's been a discrepancy from what the video of the traffic, traffic shop show and the police uh, initial statement. What are your thoughts as you looked at that video? Well, there is, there is indeed an, uh, a discrepancy between the initial statements of uh, the police officers that said that the, the car was about to hit them and the reality, what the video shows. Well, what I thought, well, obviously, uh, it's not a self-defense case. It's not a self-defense case in the sense that I don't think that the physical integrity or lives or the police officers were in danger when, they, when one of them decided to, to fire one round uh, from his pistol. Uh, my belief is that the defense, uh, and basically this is the statement that the imprisoned police officer, that the one that is currently in custody, um, made, is that the driving was of that young man was extremely dangerous, and he was not supposed to be driving in the first place because he's 17 in France. You have to be 18 to have a driver's license, and that he was posing a danger, a threat to the surrounding, potentially to surrounding people, to bystanders, to people who were walk, walking in the public space. Uh, which is why he used his uh, firearm. And in France, since 2017, it is allowed to open fire on a vehicle if that vehicle is basically fleeing, is not compliant, and posing a danger to a physical danger to people around. But, you know, you laid out the defense, which looks incredibly flawed. I mean, it's not really reasons to be shooting someone just because he's underage for driving. But, you know, this is not, Mathieu, and I think Melissa touched on this, this is not an isolated incident, you know, Today, Tuesday's killing, I should say, was uh, the third fatal shooting during traffic stops in France so far in 2023. Last year, there were a record 13. I mean, this suggests, Mathieu, doesn't it, that there's something wrong? Yes, th this is why, actually, I mentioned the 2017 law. Uh, the 2017 law um, caused a, m a massive increase of those, of those shootings. Uh, before uh, 2017, 2016, you had basically 120, 130 shots fired at uh, vehicles in France. In 2017, the law was passed in early 2017, that number increased to 202. And indeed, we went from basically one, two people killed every year during those incidents to above 10, which 
of course, is much lower than what it is in the United States, for instance. But by French or even European standards, this is pretty high. If you compare with Germany, yeah. Germany has almost none every year. And the law clearly is a huge part of the problem, as you're stating there, or one part of the problem. The other is, as I heard several of the protesters on our ASA today, they, they've been talking about institutional racism and, pro and profiling. OK, let's get back to here, John Mearsheimer, on what's going on with Putin. Devote a lot of the article to trying to explain to presumably Western and American readers what the Russian perspective is. So John Mearsheimer has just started a substack. I'll put a link in the video description. And therefore what the Russian goal is and why they're engaged in this war. And we already went over one part of it, which is they don't want Ukraine being used as a battering ram right on the other side of the border by a NATO presence or by a Western presence that they regard militarily threatening. You also talk about this other goal that they look at the people of Crimea, they look at the people of the Donbass region as people that they feel are being treated increasingly in a repressive way. There, even before the war, were attempts by the Ukrainian government with regard to Russian-speaking people, their churches, their television stations, their political parties. And since the war, there's martial law. The crackdown has become even greater. What is the Russian goal in terms of protecting the people of Crimea and Donbass as they see it? Yeah, I mean, just uh, for background purposes, it's important to understand that Ukraine is a country that has a lot of ethnic Ukrainians, and it also has a lot of ethnic Russians and Russian speakers. Uh, in, in a way, there has been a bitter divide in that country for many years. Uh, and what happened after the crisis broke out in 2014 is that you got a civil war in the Donbass area, this area in eastern Ukraine, that involved Russian speakers and ethnic Russians on one side, and the Ukrainian government, which was dominated by ethnic Ukrainians on the other side. And it was really a bitter civil war. And the Russians were deeply interested in shutting down that civil war because they were deeply committed to protecting the Russian speakers and the ethnic Russians in the Donbass. They refer to these kind of people as the near abroad. So the Russian government had a commitment to them, and it was interested in shutting that civil war down. And this is what the Minsk agreement, the famous Minsk agreement, was all about. It was an attempt to try and shut down the civil war. Of course, it failed. The end result is we now have this war. And what the Russians want to do is they want to eliminate this problem for good. This, by the way, Glenn, is one of the reasons the Russians are not going to give back that 23% of Ukraine that they've now annexed, because they want to put an end to the civil war problem, and they want to get as many Russian speakers and ethnic Russians in Ukraine underneath the Russian umbrella as possible. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is I believe that the Russians will not try to conquer all of Ukraine certainly the western half of Ukraine. I think they'll stay far away from that in large part because it's filled with ethnic Ukrainians who hate the Russians. So I think the end result of all this is that the Russians will end up controlling almost all of the areas that are dominated by ethnic Russians and Russian speakers, and they will stay out of the areas that are dominated by ethnic Ukrainians, and those areas will form the basis of the rump state that will be Ukraine in the future. And I think in the process, and I'm sad to say this, there will be a great deal of ethnic cleansing. Lots of ethnic Ukrainians will move out of the Russian-dominated areas into the Ukraine rump state, and a lot of Russian speakers and ethnic Russians who are in that Ukrainian rump state will uh, move in the other direction. 
Uh, but this is the end result of the fact that you have a state uh, that does not have a very straightforward national identity. And not only that, you have a major war taking place in this state, which just exacerbates that um, conflict over identity that was there even before the war started in February of 2022. When the Iraq war became this kind of protracted stalemate or worse from the American perspective, we were, we were kind of gifted this new theory, this new way of looking at the war that was called the surge. There was this very brilliant new general, Petraeus, who was going to implement these very intellectual counterinsurgency programs that we were told would reverse the tide of the war. And we're hearing something very similar now when it comes to the promise of this Ukrainian counteroffensive that we're told are going to break through the front lines of the Russians and take back this territory that you've been talking about the Russians occupying. To me, when I look at a map, I see a very Dugan Russian army across a huge front that seems very entrenched from a defensive perspective. What do you make of the potential for this counteroffensive that we're being told is so promising to actually succeed? Look, this counteroffensive was suicidal. And the Ukrainian forces that launched the offensive starting on June 4th, the main units that NATO trained up, were clobbered. And in fact, other units were clobbered as well. The Ukrainians didn't stand a chance. I think it was remarkably irresponsible of the West, especially the United States, to push the Ukrainians to launch this offensive. Let me say a bit more about uh, the imbalance between the Ukrainian military on one side and the Russian military on the other. It's not only the fact that the Russians had all these prepared defenses. The fact is that the Ukrainians have a significant disadvantage in terms of artillery, which is the most important weapon on the battlefield. The Russians have probably a five to one, seven to one, maybe even 10 to one advantage in artillery, which is the king of battle. Furthermore, the Russians control the air. The Russians are allowed to bring air power to bear on the Ukrainian side of the battlefield. So not only are the Russians pounding the Ukrainians with artillery, they're pounding the Ukrainians from the air with all sorts of smart bombs and doing egregious damage to the attacking forces. Furthermore, the Ukrainian forces are not well trained. You can't take a bunch of Ukrainians and train them for a couple months in Germany or Britain and expect them to launch a blitzkrieg like the Germans did in May of 1940. It takes years to produce an army that can do that. The Ukrainian army doesn't have that kind of training. And furthermore, NATO only trained up nine brigades, only nine brigades. The Ukrainian army is comprised of about 60 brigades. Only nine of them were trained up by, by, by NATO. And those brigades, not surprisingly, were cut up badly in the initial attacks in early June. So I think there is no chance that the Ukrainians are going to punch through uh, the Russian defenses and score a victory of any significance. And instead, what's going to happen here is the Ukrainians are going to suffer enormous casualties. And in fact, they're going to suffer much greater casualty than the Russians are, because the Russians are dig dug in, and they're dug into formidable positions. If Okay, this interview with John Mearsheimer was conducted uh, three, three days ago on June 30th. If I were the commander-in-chief in Ukraine, and the Americans told me that it made sense to launch an offensive, I would have said, you've got this one completely wrong. Given the disadvantages that I face as the commander of Ukrainian forces on the battlefield, it makes eminently good sense for me to stay on the defensive and allow the Russians to go on the offensive, allow the Russians to come out in the open and attack me and let me... Uh, trick those Russian forces from fixed defensive positions. The last thing you want to do from a Ukrainian perspective, I would tell the Americans, is go on the offensive. But the Americans insisted that the Ukrainians go on the offensive, and they've done that, and the end result is they've been clobbered. So, but when 
these neoliberal, these neoliberal interventionists and these neocons hear arguments like that, namely that the Russians have this massive artillery advantage on the battlefield and that the Ukrainians don't have the equipment they need to really do damage to the Russian front lines. Their argument is precisely that's all the more reason why we need to do even more to give the Ukrainians more sophisticated weapons. That's why these cluster bombs are probably coming. That's why those F-16 fighter jets were, are on their way. That's what led to the tanks being sent. All things that the U.S. promised would never happen because of how escalatory they are. In August of last year, Michael McFaul, who was former Pre uh, President Obama's former ambassador to, to Russia and has become one of the most fanatical hawks when it comes to this war, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. The title of it was, Realists Have It Wrong. Putin, not Zelensky, is the one who can end this war. He didn't mention you, but obviously when people talk about realists, you're one of the leading examples of this. And his essential argument was, recommendations for peace that instruct only Zelensky to capitulate are not only repulsive, but highly unrealistic. And so his basic argument to you is, you're exactly right. The Russians want to leave Ukraine as this rump state that's barely functional. And it's precisely because of that that we have a moral obligation to protect Ukraine and not let the Russians succeed. What's your answer to that? Well, the problem is we can't help the Ukrainians win. The idea that F-16s are a magical weapon is not a serious argument. Uh, we're not going to give them that many F-16s anyway. The F-16s that we're going to give them are second-tier F-16s. Furthermore, they don't have pilot experienced F-16 uh, experience that flying an F-16 have to train them and send them into battle quickly. And most importantly, from my view, the Russians by almost have the most sophisticated ground-based air defense in the world. The Russians will have little difficulty shutting down those handful of F-16s that we give the Ukrainians. The idea that F-16s or even ATACMs, these missiles we're talking about giving to the Russians, not giving to the Ukrainians, are going to turn the tide is not a serious argument. If you're really interested in trying to turn the tide, what you have to do is you have to give them an enormous amount of artillery. And you have to give them an enormous amount of tanks and other weapons that are useful on the ground. And the fact is, we do not have the manufacturing capability to produce enough artillery to redress the existing imbalance in artillery between the Russians and the Ukrainians. The Russians, on contrast, have a significant manufacturing capability when it comes to weaponry. And they're pumping out artillery rounds uh, uh, at a remarkably rapid pace. We can't do that. We don't have the manufacturing capability. And it's going to take us a year or two, maybe even three, to spin up that capability. And in the meantime, the Ukrainians are in deep trouble. We don't have that many tanks or artillery pieces that we can give to the Ukrainians. The West is basically out of equipment that it can give to the Ukrainians for purposes of fighting a ground war. So it's not like there's this big reservoir of uh, equipment that we're not giving to the Ukrainians that if we do give them is going to turn the tide. I mean, I think this is a fallacious argument. And finally, I would point out to you, it's not only equipment that matters, Glenn. What also matters is the manpower balance. The question is how many soldiers you're going to have on one side and how many soldiers you're going to have on the other side. If you look at the existing population figures for Ukraine and for Russia, there are now five Russians for every one Ukrainian. That means that in terms of available young males and maybe even middle-aged males to put in the military to fight these battles, the Russians are going to have an advantage that is around five to one. So not only do the Russians have a major league advantage in artillery, in tanks for that matter, but they also have a major league advantage in population size, which means the number of potential soldiers. Furthermore, they control the skies. They have a tremendous advantage in air power, and the F-16 is not going to rectify that. So I don't see how it's possible for Ukraine to win this war. Uh, I think they're doomed. Uh, I think that Ukrainians uh, have foolishly uh, picked a fight with a country that has much more military capability and will therefore win uh, in the end. I want to ask you about, uh, it's one of the last questions, the German role in all of this, because a linchpin of post-World War II peace and stability, to the extent we had it, was that the German government was demilitarized. Uh, and I think at certain points the Germans have dragged their feet. Uh, I think the problem that the Germans face is every time they're hesitant to do something, uh, everybody else in NATO gangs up on them and portrays them as weak and not seriously committed to defending Ukraine. And as a result, the Germans tend to fall in line. 
there's no question that when you look at the, the comments of the German foreign minister uh, and even uh, the German chancellor, uh, that those comments are oftentimes very hawkish. And there's no question that the Germans are now talking about stationing uh, German troops in Lithuania, which is really quite shocking. Uh, so the Germans are on board, but they're not in the vanguard. Uh, the Americans are in the vanguard. And the Americans and Germany's European allies have played a key role in pushing them to be more hardline than they were actually interested in being. The Germans have long been uh, very reticent about uh, talking in hawkish ways and taking military moves of an independent nature. They prefer to sit back and let the Americans lead and follow where necessary. Uh, and I think you see a lot of that going on now. Uh, I think the really interesting question is where this all leads. Uh, I mean, if you accept my argument in the article that I wrote, this war has a long way to go. And how it plays itself out is a very tricky issue. Uh, and what that means for Germany is a very tricky issue. Uh, I think in terms of the Germans, what's also very important to focus on is the economic damage that has been done to Germany as a result of this war. Uh, the German economy has been hurt badly, and most people I talk to believe that the situation only gets worse over time. So you want to ask yourself, you know, how does that play itself out politically in Germany? How does that influence German thinking about the war in Ukraine? Very hard to say, but uh, it's not clear to me that there won't be big fissures in Germany, uh, big fissures in Europe, and big fissures in the transatlantic alliance uh, moving forward because of the negative effects of this war, both at the economic level and at the military level. Uh, so I, uh, I wouldn't just focus on the military dimension with regard to Germany is what I'm saying. Yeah, I get that. All right, last question. Um, I think this war was sold to people, including a lot of people of good faith and good intent. To the destruction of Ukraine. This would be uh, a total disaster for Ukraine. And uh, a number of people challenged me on that. And their argument was that Ukraine is a sovereign state and it has a right to become a member of NATO if it wants to join. And furthermore, the alliance has a right to invite Ukraine into NATO if it sees fit. Uh, and you, John, don't take uh, uh, Ukraine's agency into account. My response to that is that I fully understand that Ukraine wants to join NATO, and I can understand why. But it's very important to understand that Ukraine lives next door to a great power. And Ukraine has to be extremely careful in fashioning its foreign policy so that it does not antagonize that great power. And the reason is that if you antagonize or you scare a great power, what's going to happen in all likelihood is that great power will behave in a remarkably ruthless way towards you. Great powers are not to be underestimated in terms of how easy it is to frighten them and how ruthless they often are when they are frightened. So my view is, from Ukraine's point of view, it makes eminently good sense not to frighten the Russians and to do as much as possible to accommodate the Russians. Why? Because you want to avoid having your country destroyed. But people on the other side would say, I don't buy that argument. Ukraine is a sovereign state. It has a right to join NATO. Well, it exercised that right, or it tried to exercise that right, and the West went along with it. And the end result is, as I said would happen, the Russians have moved in, and they're in the process of destroying Ukraine. Well, geez, what they're doing they're is done. they're cleaving off territory. They've already taken 23%. And as I said in the article, I think they'll ultimately try to take about 43% of the territory of Ukraine that existed before the crisis started in 2014. And they'll turn Ukraine itself into a dysfunctional rump state. Or to put it slightly differently, they'll try to turn what's left of Ukraine into a dysfunctional rump state. This is an unmitigated disaster.
for Ukraine. It makes my, me sick to my stomach to see what's happening. And it makes me sick to my stomach to think that this could have been easily avoided had we just left Ukraine alone, had NATO not decided in April 2008 to bring Ukraine into the alliance. Uh, and it's just a mistake of gigantic proportion. And the Russians are now in a situation where they are so paranoid about their security, so worried about their security, that they're going to go to great lengths to make sure that Ukraine is thoroughly wrecked. And NATO, for its part, is doubling down. That, that, that's the American and West European or European position at this point in time. It's to double down at every turn, make it clear to the Ukrainians that they will become part of NATO at some point, that we will protect them. Uh, the end result of this is just to give the Russians an added incentive to do even more damage to Ukraine. And of course, to go back to a point that you made a long time ago in this conversation, we're not doing the fighting. Michael McFaul is not doing the fighting in Ukraine. He's living comfortably in Palo Alto. It's the Ukrainians who are watching their country be destroyed by a very powerful adversary, another great power, another meaning besides the United States, right? Ukraine is not a great power. This is a disaster and it should have been avoided. Okay, Ukraine has the right to do this or the right to do that. That may be true, but it's largely irrelevant when you weigh that right against the consequences of provoking the Russians to invade Ukraine and destroy that country. Yeah, it seems like it always comes down to this. Adam Smith warned in Wealth of Nations almost 300 years ago about the dangers of people being very willing to cheer. So Mishheimer also makes the point that uh, Republicans aren't nearly as on board with this war, war as the Democrats. The campaign of Bobby Kennedy is that you no longer need that, that you can use forums like this and independent media to get messages be heard. I think that's true. I think I have some optimism about that, but it's nonetheless striking how effective this kind of marginalization is, the silencing is, where most Americans haven't even been exposed to your view, let alone been able to hear it on par with the other view. And for that reason, I'm really glad you took the time to talk to us. And this is your debut appearance, but I hope it's not your last one. We're going to be harassing you to come back soon. Thank you, Glenn. I thoroughly enjoyed Okay. Uh, yeah, Mirshimer says a lot of cracks in the Republican support for the Ukraine war. All right, Robert Wright here talking on Friday with Mickey you know, The Golden Kels. Dawn Party was outlawed. You remember the Golden Dawn Party? That was like this kind of radical right. Yes, Golden Dawn Party in Greece, anti-immigration party, was outlawed. Uh, racist party. I, I didn't know that. There's so many of them. No, this was the big one, as of like 10 years okay. ago. Um, and that's a fact. A anyway, so um, uh, rumors of his death are greatly exaggerated. I'm not exactly surprised. And what about, um, so by national popular, wait, oh, what do you Slovakia, too. There's, oh. Well, so, and, You're just talking about kind of European Trumpism, basically, right? Right, and and the um, the foreign policy implication is that they will be dissent from the EU's decision. So Mickey Kaus is noting that populism, uh, Trumpism for Europe is on the march in Europe. Agenda to you know aid Ukraine, mm -hmm. as Hungary already has, but Slovakia may join it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, but that wouldn't be crippling. I mean, Germany is Germany would matter, but they they ponied up a lot. Um, there's a uh, new evidence uh, from. An interview in the Jerusalem Post with Chinese lab workers who say, uh, my boss at the Wuhan lab came to me with four different strains of coronavirus and said, figure out which is the most lethal to humanity and will spread the fastest. Uh, basically, they were designing a bioweapon. Uh, so I don't, well, if you believe these two, two people, then you uh, have some evidence for a bioweapon. And the obvious thing for Trump to say, which I may already have said, is, that, and I know what you're going to say, but Xi released this bug because he saw that I was cruising for re-election. And I would have won, and instead the coronavirus came and screwed up my economy and caused me to lose, and Xi benefits from, or thought he would benefit from, me being replaced by Democrats. Uh, again, the idea that China intentionally released a bioweapon in China is so stupid is not to be worth wasting anybody's time on. But there is the interesting fact that there's a thin line between defensive bioweapons research and offensive. In fact, 
I think that the original application, the research that made that the and uh, did the lockdowns hurt uh, Trump politically? I think with nothing, they, they don't know what. There's more money than they know how to put to use. They all wanted to destroy Trump. I have friends who are funded. You know, and there are a million independent expenditures, people funding congressional candidates to to screw the Republicans because they think Republicans are a threat to democracy. That's their right to do it. And they're you know, there are a bunch of Silicon Valley tycoons who have millions and millions of dollars. This isn't that expensive to do. Uh, and and sure, some of them said, hey, let's try this. No, I mean, they're, they're funding see, there's an attack on the American, American compass, which is a allegedly conservative group that's arguing for a less market approach uh, economic policy. Uh, they're funded by Pierre Omidyar. OK, not a man of the right. OK, so, so you have they're, they're evidence, bunch of, they, all these people have more money than they know what to do. With. So you have evidence that their goal was to shut down. The, how about if we can only, find only women the, in politics? You know, only, if, want, only if we can find it if the women in the show silo. I want to ask you. Oh, OK, let's go. No, that's not. Have you seen the I, show Evil? Done. Have you seen the show Evil? No, no. Well, I'd like to hear you compare and, compra- and contrast your level of sexual attraction to the heroine of that show and the heroine of Silo. You're going to because uh, they have a little something in common. They're like trying these to get tough. Babe, trying to get me comp- You're trying. I, I, my line of the heroine of Silo is she's a very good actress and she conveys what she's trying to convey very effectively. It is not. It is, it is not that she's the world's most attractive person. It's she's a good. So character. You would not have drinks with her. Like if she asked you, you would not have drinks with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so um, uh, anyway. So of Cause, course, because I wouldn't. I just want to go on record. Of course, in private, you, you make you make sort of gross ethnic. That's the only place you can talk about ethnicity, which Wait is a driving force Let's, in a lot whoa, of humanity. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay? I, I so can see talk, that in private you do talk about hot women. I do not you, concede you talk, what you're about. You to talk say. about how you talk about the things that Tom Wolf talks about in Bonfire of the Vanities, which is those Irish. They're really brave. You know, they have this quality. Uh, they quality all these, ta- all the talk, stereotypes, all the stereotypes you talk who, about who in private, you could not talk about in public. You don't talk to me. Everybody except you. I'd swat you down. You can't say that the Irish are brave. Well, I have Irish blood in me. You can say the Irish are brave. Okay, ethnic talk in private. There were some extremely that, unsavory okay. elements he was incentivizing with a statement like that. Uh, so, and the war. They want NATO to join them. That's I, what this would do. You think NATO could enter the war and have it not go nuclear? Well, I don't know about that, but, but Ukraine is not imagining it going nuclear if NATO enters the war. They're imagining winning and getting all their territory back. Anyway, the, um, you know. Again- so they're making the point that Ukraine is strongly incentivized to try to get NATO into the war, including mounting false flag attacks. I think we mentioned, it reminds me of, uh, you know, when Obama said drew, the, said, drew the red line. I mean, that's an invitation for a false flag attack. You know, when he said, if there's a chemical weapons attack. And I don't know that there's any evidence that that particular one was a false flag attack. There's evidence that some in Syria were. But, um, but it's just a dumb thing to say. You just shouldn't, you know, in that case, Obama was dealing with, I mean, there were some extremely unsavory elements he was incentivizing with a statement like that. Uh, so anyway, that le- I promised to talk to this cremators about this cremators thing. They're not unrelated because the point is, like, you know, if there is an attack on the on the nuclear reactor, I mean, as with the dam story, as with Nord Stream, you can just count on the Western media to report that Russia did it uh, and, and, you know, uh, more or less or to say, well, we don't know for sure. But um, and there was a, a case. Uh, you know, so there was this bombing in Kramatorsk. And like, did you hear about the missile attack on the pizza restaurant? I did hear it. It was, a, it was a, supposedly an intentional attack on a restaurant that they knew was going to be crowded and was a favorite of journalists. Yeah, I mean, in a certain sense, it doesn't matter which of the two things happened, which of the two narratives, because it's an atrocity either way. You're attacking a civilian, big civilian uh, area. You know civilians are going to get killed. So at a moral level, it's not a huge difference. But I, it's just something I followed because, you know, because I follow both, I follow both pro-Ukraine and pro-Russia people on Twitter. When the thing happened and they reported that a pizza restaurant uh, had been hit on pro-Russia Twitter, it was all like, you know, this is distorted reporting. What was hit was, I mean, the, the, the pizza restaurant was hit, but what, but what was the direct target of the missile was I think it was a hotel or something where they're supposedly, according to this narrative, were. So this is a lot like uh, World War One, where all sorts of atrocities were falsely attributed to the Germans, 
try to get the United States to enter the war? Uh, enjoy the money. Like the sure. bestseller. Oh, I, I'm, not, I'm not starving to death. The, we're, talking, um, we're talking generational wealth here, Bob. No, I mean, the book that tempts me is the book. Uh, I, I just wrote this piece on artificial intelligence and the noosphere. That could be a small book that would do a lot of work. You could, you could use that as a framing of a way to talk about I, AI. I was going to read that, and I didn't have time. Could you, you summarize read it, it? See what you think. What? Can it's you not summarize a, it, or is it too complicated? It's too complicated. It's almost, it, it's not, it's more of a promise than a piece. I mean, it, it's a, it's a promise of pieces to come. I'm going to write more about it, uh, but. Um, well, that's a bestseller too. People, as you know, from being a magazine writer, there's nothing people like better than science and religion pieces. Yeah. You know, when, Bill, when Bill Clinton ran for president, every time his poll numbers dropped, he did a welfare ad. When the news magazine circulation dropped, they did a science and religion cover. One of them was mine. Time magazine, yeah. science and, what was it? Okay. Science and God or something. That was my first time piece. It was around Christmas. They wanted a God cover. Um, as, uh, as is their want. And that was Walt, Walter. Did Newsweek do a competing God cover? <laughs> Theirs was the story behind the God story. Um, we've already the, said we've already said what Rick Hertzberg said about news magazines, right? No, what do you say? But why they always have the covers that are similar? No, well, they're like they're like women living together who all come oh. to get their periods at the same time. That's a good line. Okay, this is Robert Wright talking to a lawyer of international relations, uh, Sean Mursky. So here we go. Not either for ideological reasons or for kind of economic reasons, which tend to be the sort of prevailing conventional wisdoms. So anyway, long explanation there. To your question about uh, blowing up the world. Uh, yeah, I mean, so as you, as you, you are mentioned against that, that. Are you going to take a normative position there? You're against that? I am against blowing up the world. Uh, as an inhabitant of the world, though, I have a vested interest, so I don't know if I can be trusted <laughs> to give an objective answer. Not, not, not for uh, altruistic reasons, but, but you are against blowing up the world. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, look, you mentioned that uh, I quote at the end of the book or, or uh, allude to the title of uh, Professor Mearsheimer's work, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. One of the sort of unhappy lessons of the tragedy of great power politics is that there's not there's no solution, right? I mean, there, you have these, for a variety of reasons, you have these certain dynamics, these structural constraints in international relations that lead to, uh, to invoke uh, the name of this podcast, uh, su you know, uh, um, suboptimal sort of outcomes that aren't positive sum, that aren't even zero sum, they tend to be unfortunately negative sum. And so um, I do think that there's, you know, obviously room for cooperation. And th there are ways, as the Cold War itself showed, of avoiding, you know, nuclear apocalypse. So why has the United States intervened overseas? Because it saw it as pursuing its own national interests, as only when United States in the 1990s became the world's sole superpower that it then could uh, afford to do all sorts of things that were not aligned with its national interests. Um, but the, you know, to answer the abstract question with a bit of an abstract answer, I, I think it's challenging to avoid sort of the spirals and dynamics and structural constraints that tend to lead to the sort of sustained competition. But I do think there are better and worse ways of handling it and sort of being cognizant of what's really motivating international politics, I think tends to be the most effective way to make sure that uh, the worst outcomes are avoided. Okay. So uh, with all that as prelude, let, let's um, launch into the history. Uh, I guess one transition would be to say that uh, the U.S. kind of had the luxury of operating in an environment where the spiral that, that, that we just described, the kind of positive feedback cycle that can get you a negative outcome, was unlikely to lead to anything catastrophic because we, we were so much uh, bigger than any other neighbor. So anyway, it starts with the Monroe Doctrine before the Civil War. The, the actual interventions don't get started much until after the Civil War. Um, uh, the, well, I guess the Mexican-American War is a fairly big exception. That's, a, yeah, that yeah, goal, that's but... not nothing. Um, so, yeah. so why don't you uh, tell us why we started intervening? Um, engineering, maybe start with, you can start with that as an example. There are different kinds of interventions, but why don't we, why don't we start with that? And, and what was the logic? Sure. So the, the basic argument I make in the book is that the United States faced what I think could fairly be called a, a structural sort of problem when uh, three conditions arose. And in the book, I call this the problem of order. Basically, the United States was concerned whenever there was an area of strategic importance, which for purposes of this book is essentially the Caribbean and Central America and to a lesser extent, the rest of the hemisphere. Uh, and that area of strategic importance was under foreign threat in the sense that the United States perceived that uh, one of its great power rivals, usually in Europe, although Japan pops up uh, an example of Hawaii, 
um, when one of its great power rivals was interested in expanding in that strategic, uh, strategically important area. And finally, the strategically important area was itself uh, very unstable, uh, you know, politically, it's, you know, civil war and revolution, economically, it's wrecking a massive debt. In general, what in today's terms, we call failing or failed states. Uh, and I think when you have those three conditions operating together, an area that's strategically important, under foreign threat, and vulnerable, uh, that creates a problem from the United States' perspective. Uh, the basic problem is that you, you have a power vacuum in this area and that you have someone else who wants to fill it. And so what the United States, I think, was trying to do during the period in the, that I look at in the book is as much as possible prevent European expansion by sort of resolving these power vacuums. And, and he also talks about why the United States ended up taking over Hawaii. Easily, uh, you know, 80, 90 percent of the kind of original inhabitants are wiped out by the time you're getting to, let's call it the mid-19th century. Um, this creates all sorts of problems. Uh, but from the U.S. perspective, one of the things that really aggravates it is that Hawaii starts importing Japanese laborers at a very high rate to sort of man the sugarcane fields, in part because there's just not enough Native Hawaiians to do the job anymore. Um, and uh, the other portion of the background that I think is necessary is that in uh, 1893, there's a coup uh, in Hawaii where the essentially the white uh, residents of essentially Honolulu launch a coup against the then Native Hawaiian monarchy, overthrow her, and establish this republic. Um, and from 1893 to 1898, there's a sort of awkward tension in American foreign policy, where on the one hand, Americans feel, at least the Democrats, have this sort of sense of, well, we definitely were involved in this coup. We should not, you know, we should not in any way annex Hawaii. Republicans, I think, are more in favor of it, but it's this sort of partisan debate about what to do with Hawaii. By 1897, though, the, uh, there's, for a variety of reasons, uh, the Japanese population on the island has become extremely, extremely large. And the Japanese nation itself is starting to demand voting rights for their laborers on the, uh, on the islands. And Americans, as well as the kind of reigning white uh, uh, Hawaiian republic, are really concerned that this is going to essentially lead to Japanese domination of the island. And I think the numbers are fairly convincing that that was at least uh, not, a, not a minor threat. And Japan was acting in a very aggressive way. And so what ends up happening is that the United States basically to preempt what it sees as a fairly imminent threat of Japanese intervention, signs an annexation treaty to annex the islands itself. Now, you asked why, why do we care whether Hawaii is Japanese or not? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a couple of reasons, but one of the big ones is that the, it's hard to overstate the strategic importance of Hawaii, particularly at the age that it was annexed, which is an age of steamship and coal and, and all that. And so if you look at where Hawaii is on the map, it's about 2,000 some miles from San Francisco. But it's also about 2,000 miles from anywhere else. It is uh, an extraordinarily unique area of the world in the sense that almost no other part of the world has so few, uh, is both, you know, an ocean itself and has so few actual islands there. Which means that in an era where you have steamships and the steamships require coal and coal requires coaling stations to pick up and you have only limited distances you can travel before you have to go to a, a coal station, Hawaii ends up being essentially the only gas station in the middle of the entire Pacific Ocean. Mm -hmm. And so if you have an enemy, for instance, any nation like Japan that controls Hawaii, uh, then they can attack the east or west coast of the United States with essentially no problem using Hawaii as sort of a base. If, on the other hand, the United States controls Hawaii, then there's really no way for the Japanese to attack the west coast in this era because um, they simply wouldn't have the coal to make it there. And so mm -hmm. for naval strategists at the time, Hawaii is sort of seen as this, uh, as this way of defending the west coast and basically making it in invulnerable to enemy attack. Okay. Um, and couldn't Russia make all those same type of arguments about right, now the... We are uh, the case for why they needed to intervene with Ukraine. All right, here's a little bit more from attorney international relations specialist John Muskie. Uh, I should actually ask them. I don't know if they were voting. Totally. I, but they, um, but no, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think there was a, my read at least, and again, I should say up front, I'm not an expert in this area, but my read at least is that post world, post the end of the Cold War, the United States found itself in a situation that was remarkably like the situation at the end of World War One, in the sense that it had just, um, not directly defeated, but it had indirectly defeated its only real rival. And so for, for a brief moment, there was what I think Professor Mearsheimer would call a holiday from great power politics. And so in part because you didn't face those security pressures, in part because there wasn't that great power competition, the United States ended up acting in a large part of its foreign policy was being driven by non-security considerations. So same as in you know the 1920s and early 1930s, we were doing things based less on what was important for our national security and more 
I think what was kind of consistent with our values and principles. I think the same thing was true of the uh, 1990s. Uh, where foreign policy was being driven by essentially values and principles. And so one of those values is democracy and, you know, and uh, liberal, you know, expanding classical liberalism and all that. And so NATO enlargement was seen, I think, partially as a, as a way of kind of doing that. And you see the same sort of uh, motivations in some of the interventions, you know, in the Balkans, um, you know, the consider in Somalia as well, the kind of consideration of intervention in Rwanda. Um, you know, this, this humanitarianism ends up being a kind of more important motivator for US foreign policy. Um, again, not to say that because it was a motivator, it kind of worked out that way. Uh, I think, again, the example of Woodrow Wilson shows how. Okay, so when when we had pressing interests, we intervened to pursue those interests. When we didn't have press, pressing interests, we often intervened in other countries because we got carried away, intoxicated by our own righteousness and power. Right, a lot of excellent articles in the latest edition of the Claremont Review of Books, an article on crime and the Democrats, William Vogley writes, and this is a very common argument. No other advanced democracy has the incarceration approaching America's. Well, America has a high population of people who commit an extraordinary number of crimes. So he looks at data provided at World Population Review's website comparing America's incarceration rates to other nations when you take into account murder rates. Right? So for every person who is a murder victim in the United States, the number of people incarcerated is 127. That's pretty much near the middle of the distribution. Right, Switzerland, right, widely considered a humane, well-governed nation. It has a ratio of 124 to 1. So America's incarceration rate is 8.6 times as high as Switzerland, but our murder rate is 8.4 times as high. So the United Kingdom, France, Germany, and Canada have a lower prison-to-murder population than the U.S. Japan, Italy, Australia, and New Zealand have a considerably higher ratio. So some nations have higher murder rates and lower incarceration rates than the U.S. For example, Mexico imprisons just six people for every one that is murdered. Do we want to follow that example? Uh, Nigeria, you're, you're more likely to be murdered in Nigeria than you are to be sentenced to prison for any crime. So maybe Nigeria has so many murderers largely because it has so few prisoners. Then another excellent article in the latest Claremont Review of Books on the affirmative action regime, how diversity derailed the Constitution. And it makes the point that racial diversity makes us so divided that we now supposedly need the government to be involved in managing our most intimate affairs and teaching us how to live together and unite in common purpose. Right, so if we require constant governmental meddling and intervention, how is that a strength and not a weakness? On what basis would anyone argue that diversity is a strength? Starting in the 1960s, Harvard instituted a 200-point preference on SAT scores for black applicants. And then uh, ESPN issues diversity report cards based on the racial diversity of its players, and the National Basketball Association gets a higher grade than Major League Baseball, even though the NBA is one of the most racially homogenous sports leagues, while the Major League Baseball's racial breakdown basically matches the nation's percentages. Well, the NBA is considered more diverse than the Major League Baseball because it is less white. The NBA is around 18% white. Major League Baseball is 16% white. So when people talk about diversity, they mean less white. They mean anti-white. If Harvard admitted students according to a purely academic index, Harvard would be less than 1% black. But given all of Harvard's racial preferences, more than 15% of the admitted class is black. Whites constitute around 60% of America's population, but in undergraduate programs at Yale, Princeton, and Stanford, they are about uh, 30 to 
between 1963 Princeton and 66, Princeton had a 200-point SAT difference for black students. And then uh, Harvard outdid them. So now in the elite universities, we're talking typically a 300 to 400 SAT point advantage for black male students in particular. All right, you're probably wondering, 40, haven't heard from Fred Luskin in a while. Is Fred Luskin, author of a great book, Forgive for Good? Wrong, you did. Just like for other forgiveness, you have to hold it. You have to know I did wrong or somebody did wrong and here's the consequences. Real self-forgiveness, that's part of it too. So in, with me, when I do work, I want to see couples or people have real regret, feel some guilt, have remorse because those are healthy emotions. But just like you don't want them to you know, stay in your consciousness for too long, you want them there for a while so that you learn from them. Okay, that's my that's a kick I'm on. So I apologize if I push that too strongly. So what I want to get straight, particularly at the beginning of the day, get, get my mindset right. I listen to a lot of Fred Luskin talks and interviews. You. you know, what I always like about you, Fred, is you give it as it is. And um, that's brilliant. I mean, this is another one you say that I want to rebel against as well. And that is <laughs> life is not fair. You and I can't figure out what fairness is, <laughs> you know, but I'll tell you how I use that. When we used to do a lot of trainings, there were people in the room at Stanford primarily who would say how unfair it is that like their husband had cheated on them or, you know, their business, somebody had stolen something or, you know, real things. Yep. And I remember stopping a class and saying, let's talk a little bit about fairness. You're in a room here at Stanford University, one of the, the world's top universities. It's a beautiful day outside. You have food, clothing, and shelter. So right now, just in those parts of conditions, you have a life probably in the top 10% of human beings who have ever walked on this planet. Is that fair? I don't think you actually are interested in fair. I think you're interested in you benefiting. I don't think fairness is important to you. I don't think you have even the slightest shred of interest in fairness. I think you only bring up fairness when you don't get more. Oh, Fred, you're just so wonderful. But you get what I'm driving at, right? Oh, I mean, here I, we are. I, I do. It's just so, it's so real, but uh, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, we all have three squares a day. We have food, shelter, clothing. You know, the people in the Bay Area can take vacations. And, and they're complaining to me that life isn't fair. And I'm agreeing with them. Right, we have all these social, this is like essential, uh, getting straight, getting clear approach to life and it, it spills over into politics yeah much of life is not fair does that mean you need to devote yourself to you know angry social justice movements and here's the third one we have to accept our own vulnerability and that we cannot control our loved ones and often a lot of our grievances are we believe that because we love them so much we ought to be able to control them because if we can't we might get hurt in fact we will get hurt whatever happens andrew the one that you just talked about the vulnerability, is the crucial issue in all of this. Human beings are legitimately anxious and scared almost all the time because at some part of us, we know how vulnerable we are. And we spend a good part of our life trying to deal with that, often unsuccessfully. And one of the ways that we try to master our vulnerability is by holding grudges. 
Another way we try to master our vulnerability is by making up all these rules in our head about how life should be. So we make up these rules so we don't have to live with the uncertainty. When those defenses fail, that's when we're really scared and when we're really at risk. And it's the reason why forgiveness is so difficult is because grieving deals with our vulnerability and grudges try to mask that vulnerability. And so healthier people grieve and more fragile people hold grudges. And it's tough work forgiving, but um, I think we ought to raise up the benefits of it. What are the benefits of forgiving? Less stress, because you're not regurgitating the fact that you've been harmed. Greater efficacy and hope, because once you've handled life's difficulties, you have a greater sense that you can do it again. You've generally learned how to repair relationship, even if it's just in you. So you have greater relationship skills and you carry with you a general sense of less threat because you've checked in and recognized that even if you've been slammed, you can come out at some level with your heart still open. And so those are the benefits of forgiveness on the, on the negative side or the what they make you do less of. There's less blame. There's less victimhood. And there's less um, stress-related illnesses. And there's less of a sense, and this is the big issue for our world, there's less defending our cruelty because others have been cruel to us. That That's the human's default. Like, my mother didn't love me, so I don't have to love. My partner was lousy, so I can do this. My boss is terrible. I don't have to do a good day's work. We use our unresolved wounds to defend our own lack of goodwill. And forgiveness chips away at some of that. So in a moment, I'm going to sort of look at this forgiveness in action with a letter that somebody's written into me. ...with you on holiday. And what is a zombie marriage and how you can repair one? So if you go to my website, I know he loved me, but I still can't get the images and the thoughts of his betrayal out of my mind. I can't eat or sleep and I cry constantly. How do I stop obsessing and go back to remembering the love we shared and the life we built for 37 years? So here is a nice concrete example of somebody who has most probably done harm to another person and they are stuck because there's nothing this other person can do because they're no longer there. But our correspondent is left with a lot of very painful feelings and at a very painful time because losing your partner is extraordinarily difficult to recover from. So what would you say to this one, Fred? That her goal is wrong. What should her goal be then? She can't go back. Her goal is to come to a more mature experience of her marriage and that she was presented with information as to who her husband was that shattered a fantasy. So she has to grieve that fantasy, that false version of who he was, and come into a more mature understanding of his flawed nature and of her inability to discern the truth. So there's some forgiveness of her and some forgiveness of him. And then if possible, open up to, on balance, the gifts that they shared were better than the losses and the difficulties and the hidden things that he kept from her. But before she can get there, she's got to be able to see clearly who he was, who he wasn't, the limits of their relationship. She can't go back into innocence. 
and she's wanting to, and that is intensifying her suffering. At some point, hopefully, she'll come out of this and say, I had a long marriage with a flawed human being who kept some things from me. I didn't investigate certain things. But when I look back, you know, we created something good. We mostly treated each other well. And I'm, I'm sorry he's not here. But that there's no like fairy tale romance in that. Now, the only other thing that I will say is this is not uncommon, not the degree that she found, but it's not uncommon when partners die that people find out things that they didn't want to know when the partner was alive. And they're forced to come to a more mature reckoning of who that person actually was. Because sometimes we have a view. Yeah, that, that's good. Coming to a more mature reckoning, that's what we need to do with institutions, right? You, you may think that like the CDC is just amazing and then you might think it's trash. Well, it's a flawed institution, the FDA, politicians, judges, your boss, all right, uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, people around you, synagogues, churches, come to a more mature understanding of who people and institutions are. They're not usually all good or all bad. And so we often shift overly dramatically from an inflated perspective on an individual and an institution to then uh, taking them from the pedestal and putting them in the trash heap. Right? Here's more with Fred Lusk. Oh, and I have thought about, but I, I can tell I st I've still carried it. I always use the term... When I was young, I wrote a poem when I was in college, a poem about this, about what happened when I was five. And I, it was the, I don't remember the exact poem. I do have it in my safe, actually, which is odd. And Laponius really needs to do this. It might help him get over what Uncle Wally did. 30 years him. later. But it was about from that moment, I never felt I, I could run between the raindrops any longer. That I felt every raindrop in the world versus before when I was a child, before this happened, I could run through the raindrops. Life was glorious and life was fun. It was glamorous. And it was, you know, I was, I was nobody could harm me. And then all of a sudden... And I really thought I had dissipated a lot of that, of that, you know, childhood victimhood mentality. And then I really in the last two weeks, since I've been just researching a lot of your work, I really don't think I have said, you know, I was a wounded victim at one time, but now looking now and what I've learned through the process and now where am I going? Um, you know, obviously you still carried some of that with you through memory and through baggage to some degree, but maybe trying to lose let lessen some of that baggage every day or every, you know, throughout the process, letting some of that drops, but focusing, I think I've been focusing still after 50, some 50 years after this happened, still looking backward versus now looking forward more, more and more and more. And I think that has been and, an and anchor. There are so many ways that, um, we as humans have choices as to what we do with either people who hurt us people who don't do what they want, what we want them to. I remember, um, and, and this is related to the unbelievable political discord that we have now in all the ways that we've divided into like red and blue, almost tribes. But I remember coming home one time in um, when I was a kid and I didn't like my, I don't remember, probably 11th grade English teacher. And, and and she was, I grew up in, you know, so I was in high school at the early 70s and the Vietnam War was raging. And I remember coming home and telling my mother that, you know, the English class that I was taking was ridiculous. You know, I could be sent to Vietnam in a year and, and she's talking about pride and prejudice and it was a complete waste of my time. And my mother looked at me and said, yeah, that makes total sense. And you're going to have to figure out how to get along in a world with people who don't do what you want. Like she just said that to me, like, you know, yeah, you're right. And it's not the end of the world being right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's it in a nutshell. You have to learn to get along 
in a world where people don't do what you want, where institutions don't do what you want, where politicians don't do what you want, when your parents don't do what you want, you have to learn to get along and make the best of it, right? You may not be down with the trans agenda, but work might well place you next to someone who's trans, and you want to have the best possible relations you possibly can with that person who's trans or gay or Christian or atheist or Muslim or Jewish, black, whatever. You want to have the best possible relations with everyone. That is a formula for a better life. You've got to learn to adapt. And I just read an article today in today's Times that, you know, there was that incident at Stanford Law School where a very conservative judge was shouted down by very liberal students. And this this op-ed columnist was talking about that and talking about how we now live in a culture where I think she reported that over 50 percent of of like single democrats would not date a republican and like 30 something percent of republicans would not date a democrat and i think like we are embedding unforgiveness culturally that it is it is becoming almost a badge of honor that if they do something or believe something that i don't agree with i'm i'm exiting them from my heart and that's what unforgiveness does. It, it, it takes the offense and like embeds it and then makes the people who did it or the people we think who did it bad people. Mm-hmm. And it's a very challenging thing that that's being codified culturally. And, and it, it's, 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 it's an unmental health experience. Like I, you, <laughs> I, I can't put that any more strongly. We are teaching our young people and each other things that do not contribute to their mental health. Well, Dr. Luskin, um, I always think that when you look at the political realm, that, that's just a great point there from Fred Luskin of society. I've always shared with my family and friends, the pendulum always kind of swings back to the middle and it always, we have extreme behaviors on one side, we have extreme behaviors and then it kind of settles in the middle. It doesn't seem that it's settling any at this time. It seems like it goes from one to the other, then one to the other. And nobody seems to be swinging that, letting that pendulum kind of just settle in the middle and let it tick tock back and forth like a grandfather clock instead of swinging wildly. Do you think that's still a possibility for our society to get there where the pendulum can kind of rest somewhere peacefully in the middle? It- the answer, of course, is yes, it's possible. But it requires some understanding of what people want. And there's always been uh, floating around like the the mental health world. Do you want to be happy or do you want to be right? And those are often challenging um, orthogonals. Sometimes they're not, but some they're often challenging orthogonals. How much do I have to insist that I'm right? Because if I have to insist that I'm right, then you need to be wrong. And happiness probably has more to do with shifting, a little bit of shifting opinions, some humility about one's views, and even looking back and recognizing, you know, I was right a good number of times, but unfortunately I was wrong a good number of times. Um, It's an inner flexibility and it's a group flexibility that is probably the most useful. And, And it's like, if you look at, successful marriages, long-term intimate partnerships. Usually there's some flexibility in, um, I'm going to say, who's holding the stress or who's being the, the, the giver taker. Like you need, there are times in a relationship where one person is just more on top of their life. So they're giving more, they're more gracious and the other person is sucking their thumb and, you know, whatever. But if that becomes permanent, then the relationship struggles. If it's seen as you know, it doesn't have to be equal every second, but things come and go. That's a flexibility. If you see that my partner brings 
both skills and challenges that I don't have. And some of them will be irritating, but some of them will be growth producing. It's this somehow a, a lessening of this striking need that humans have to be right and make things that either they don't agree with or hurt them into wrongs. And I think that's underneath what it is you're asking. Yeah, I think. I, I... Okay, so there's a pretty interesting, fun podcast called If Books Could Kill. It's a couple of lefties. They, they make some, some good Michael, points, you know however. Rich dad, poor dad. So I haven't read the book, but I do know that the only difference between a rich dad and a poor dad is that one of them invested in GameStop. Okay, so let me fast forward here. Baseball I want to get to the. I don't know if that's an investment, Robert. The right well, the, the baseball stamp. card market notoriously collapsed in the 80s and like through the 80s and 90s and is now a tiny fraction of what it was. So oh, I that's not skill. the time Often, set. I recommend Come joining on, a network guys. marketing. When I get a raise, I'll buy a bigger. This is basically how like Oprah, there's kind of, there's something rich people know that you don't. Yeah. I think that's also a very tempting message because like, yeah, you look around America at how unequal things are and you're like, there must be some secret to this. Yeah. I just like, I, I struggle to convey like how much contempt I have for the people that do this. Oh yeah. All right, talking about the grifter book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. They're disgusting. This is what really frustrates me about the rise of this book into popular culture. So this guy's a total nobody. Mm -hmm. The only thing he's ever made money on is these seminars. So this is a scammy seminar as a book, right? It's it's yes. a natural extension. This is basically how like Oprah plucks him from obscurity. <sighs> Without Oprah, God. he's still a C-list motivational speaker. She's doing the same thing at scale, right? Yeah. She's she's selling bullshit to her audience in the same exact way, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? I, Oprah, am a billionaire, and how did I do it? Vibes, mindset, yeah, yeah. right? That's that's her pitch. So to get back to the book, we're, we're now on page roughly 80 of a 200-page book. We finally get to something resembling actionable advice. <laughs> so he starts by giving you some of the worst fucking advice I've ever seen. He lists a bunch of like myths he's like these are like these are common misconceptions that a lot mm -hmm. of americans have right so this is a list of them your home is an asset get a bill consolidation loan and get out of debt work harder save money when i get a raise i'll buy a bigger house mutual funds are safe and tickle me elmo dolls are out of stock but i just happen to have one in back and another customer has not come by for it yet what what <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so let's put the tickle me Elmo one aside yeah, for a moment. Mm -hmm. Every other thing in there is a solid piece of financial advice that he is saying is in fact a misconception. Save money. <laughs> saying that save money is bad advice. Mm -hmm. Your home is not an asset. Your home is uh, what? What does he think it is? A liability, Peter. He has a liability. A whole tedious section about how you think your home is an asset, but it's actually a liability. Because you have to pay interest on your mortgage. Like I don't get it. He has this weird thing where he says friends of his had to pay a thousand dollars a month in property taxes, and it like wiped out the value of their house or something. I'm like, how much is their fucking house worth? <laughs> <laughs> he talks about living in Phoenix in the 1990s and watching Good Morning America. And some like financial guru comes on and he says, his advice was to save money. Put $100 away every month, he said. And in 40 years, you'll be a millionaire. Well, putting money away every month is a sound idea. It is one option. The option most people subscribe to. The problem is this. It blinds the person from what is really going on. They miss major opportunities for much more significant growth of their money. The world is passing them by. Oh, God. What is it? blinds them from what's really going on. What the fuck does that mean? Let me show you the secret knowledge of running scam seminars. <laughs> this is the kind like, genuinely. Yeah, these are two dudes. The, the one who is just talking there is a straight dude who's married. The other dude is a gay dude. Dangerous in a sort of obvious way. But like the best way to illustrate it, I think, is imagine a society where everyone follows this advice. A society as we know it would collapse. He also, you knew, you knew he was going to get to this place. There's a section on like retirement savings where he says like, don't, don't invest in mutual funds because like they're all scammers and they're trying to like a uh, fund managers are trying to fuck you over. What? And then he says, when I speak to adults who want to earn more money, I suggest taking a long view of their life. Instead of simply working for the money and security, which I admit are important, I suggest they take a second job that will teach them a second skill. Often, I recommend joining a network marketing company, mm. also known as multi-level marketing. Mm, yes. It's like, okay, I did, this is where I did a control effort timeshare. <laughs> like, right, where, where, where is he taking me next? What I would suggest is actually being scammed. <laughs> 
it's not just running scams, it's also being scammed. The yin and the yang yep. of being a rich dad. So after he gives you all of this atrocious advice, we finally get to the first piece of actual financial advice in the book. This is when, when you find like subreddits and stuff where people talk about this book, a lot of people like defend this book by saying that like this is an actual genuine piece of wisdom. So uh -huh. his number one rule for financial security in your life is buy assets, not liabilities. Okay. He says yeah. rich people acquire assets. The poor and middle class acquire liabilities, but they think they're assets. Yeah. So then I'm not fucking kidding. There's 40 pages go by before he tells you what a fucking asset is. Oh he gives it to you in like these like vague terms. It's like an asset puts money into your pocket, but a liability takes it away. And there's all these <laughs> fucking charts. And you're like, right, what specifically do you mean, Robert? It seems to me like there's a very good shot that he doesn't actually have a coherent definition of what an asset is and what a liability oh, is. Oh, do you want to get to it? It's eight parts, Peter. Oh. He finally, he finally gives it to us. Ultimately, an asset is something that earns passive income for you. Okay. He finally gives us a list. He says, one, businesses that do not require my presence. <laughs> Two, stocks. Three, bonds. Four, mutual funds. Five, income generating real estate. Six, notes, parentheses, IOUs. Mm -hmm. Seven, royalties from intellectual property, such as music, scripts, patents. Eight, this is the best one, and anything else that has value, produces income, or appreciates, and has a ready market. Yeah, okay. Sure, that's the catch-all. <laughs> so it's like stocks, bonds, real estate, and everything. Tickle me on those. Yeah. <laughs> Great, Robert. He then literally goes into a whole thing about Tickle Me Elmo's. I, I was, I was going to say, should we circle back to Tickle Me Elmo's? So I'm glad we got there. So he basically says that, like, you know, talks about, like, the run on Tickle Me Elmo's. And, you know, scalpers mm -hmm. were selling these stupid toys for, like, I don't know, $10,000 or something. It was, like, a big deal for one, whatever Christmas it was. Yeah. You're, again, just inviting people to get scammed, basically. Right. He mentions baseball cards. Like, I don't know if that's an investment, Robert. Well, the, the baseball card market notoriously collapsed in the 80s and, like, through the 80s and 90s and is now a tiny fraction of what it was. So. Oh, I didn't know this. So great, great, great. hot tip. Don't buy houses, buy baseball cards. So his second money-making tip is avoid paying taxes. Hell yeah. That's what I'm fucking talking about. It's not really like a money-making strategy. It's more like this is like advice to already rich people. Right. Like there's no there's no like hot tip on how, like how to avoid paying like your W-2 taxes, you know? Yeah, exactly. If you're an employee, like <laughs> your boss reports your income and you report your income. Haha. <laughs> Mr. IRS, I actually don't owe you any taxes because I was working for free for my friend's dad. Okay. <laughs> so this one starts with another little piece of dialogue. When does your dad pay his bills? The first of the month. Does he have anything left over? Very little. That's the main reason he struggles. He has bad habits. Your dad pays everyone else first. He pays himself last, but only if he has anything left over. But he has to pay his bills, doesn't he? You're saying he shouldn't pay his bills? Of course not. I firmly believe in paying my bills on time. I just pay myself first before I pay even the government. But what happens if you don't have enough money? The same. I still pay myself first, even if I'm short of money. My asset column is far more important to me than the government. But don't they come after you? Yes, if you don't pay. Look, I did not say not to pay. I just said I pay myself first. <laughs> Even if I'm short of money. What is he saying? What the fuck is going on here? What, what, what the is... fuck? He keeps doing this weird thing where he's like, pay yourself first. But he doesn't say what the fuck that means. What that means is like you are from time to time stiffing your employees or the government. Right. But then when when, the, when this child is like, isn't this illegal? He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I never said right. I don't pay them. Wink, 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 wink. I am like going easy on him and I'm cutting a lot of the stuff where he like talks about how much he fucking hate, hates taxes. <laughs> Huge portions of this book. Shocker. And Shocker. he just like straight up lies. He says over and over again, he's like, the more money you earn, the more the government takes. Hmm. Right. But we have marginal tax rates in the United States. Yep. He also says that when his dad died, like I didn't even get any money because the government took it all. America has an estate tax that kicks in at $12 million. Hawaii has an estate tax that kicks in at $6 million. Right. I thought, yeah, I thought his dad was broke as hell. And now he's complaining that the government took it. All of the actual advice in this is, it, it just sort of like scammy advice for rich people. So he says you should like set up a corporation yeah. for like legal liability stuff. And then you can write off your expenses. So he says, by owning your own corporation, vacations are board meetings in Hawaii. Car payments, insurance, repairs are company expenses. This is tax fraud. Health club membership is a company expense. Tax fraud. Most restaurant meals are partial expenses, yep. but do it legally with pre-tax dollars. Transparently tax fraud. I love, this is like the third time that he's described something that's patently illegal, illegal. and then just put it, a line at the end of it that's like, but not in an illegal way. <laughs> so yeah, that's from the podcast, If Books Could Kill, where they essentially take apart 
uh, airport bestsellers. And one of the books that they take apart is I've got, the rules. I've so many zingers Ooh, bouncing uh, around in my mind. Do you want to do a couple? Do you want to do a trifecta of zingers? <laughs> I, my, my favorite, absolute dumbest one um, was something like, uh, <laughs> the, the only thing I know about rules, Michael, is that I'm always breaking them. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible, Pierre. That's so, That's so terrible. Bad. I was just, I was ready to do it though. I was <laughs> All right, give us, give us the real one. Let's, let's go All in. Right. Okay. All right, go for it. Uh, Peter. Michael. What do you know about a book called The Rules? Finally, a set of arbitrary social guidelines for women. To give you a couple of paragraphs of very specific advice. Oh. I'm sure this was basically the text on your Bumble profile, which is like, <laughs> this is the woman, this is the woman that I want. This is how you should be. Don't leave the house without wearing makeup. Put lipstick on even when you go jogging. Do everything you possibly can to put your best face forward. If you have a bad nose, get a nose job. A bad nose. Color gray hair. Grow your hair long. Men prefer long hair. Something to play with and caress. You don't have to say true after every one of these paragraphs, Peter. I already know you agree. <laughs> I know your people. Men like women who are neat and clean. They also make better mothers of their children, the kind who don't lose their kids at the beach. That's true. I do, at the end of the day, want a woman who would not lose our kids at the beach. Yeah, who will not result in the death of your children. <laughs> now a word about clothes. If you walk around in any old clothes on a theory that what counts is only what's inside, not your outside, think again. Men like women who wear fashionable, sexy clothes in bright colors. Why not please them? Why not have the largest shoulders you can possibly have? <laughs> you, you have to stop editing the quotes as you go through them. You should have so, shoulder, shoulder pads so large you cannot get on a bus. <laughs> Don't aspire to the unisex look. Buy feminine-looking clothes to wear on the weekends as well as during the work week. Remember that you're dressing for men, not other women, so always strive to look feminine. Wear a short skirt, but not too short. If you have the legs for it. <laughs> if you don't, get a leg replacement, ladies. Get a leg job. Well, I wouldn't describe this as feminist. That's just me. <laughs> the casualness of like, you have a bad nose, get a nose job. Fix your face. Make your face better. Jesus. We then get to rule number two, which is don't talk to a man first and don't ask him to dance. And they're very explicit about like, they mean this literally. Never. Right. Talk to a man first. Do not go up to men. They say even if you're at a nightclub, don't do the thing where you like stand near a man hoping that he talks to you. Right. Basically, you should act completely distant and aloof and unbothered at all times. And only men who like aggressively come up to you. Those are the men who you should entertain. Only pickup artists should be approaching <laughs> exactly. you. Exactly. This is written before the game, so I will give right. them a little bit of credit. If you tried this in 2007, this ensures that, like, a man will approach you in a nightclub, like, juggling and then making <laughs> eye contact. Only respond if he has runes. Look at his runes first. What's in his fanny pack? When he shines a black light on you, you should be spotless. There's, I think, one of the main tensions that they have in this book, and they never really reconcile, is they're straddling the line between pretend to be aloof and be aloof. Yeah, yeah. At, at one point, they sort of intimate that, like, if you go out to a nightclub and a man doesn't hit on you, that's actually totally fine. Have an enjoyable time with your friends. Uh -huh. And, like, that's reasonable advice, right? You should not live your life as if you're waiting for somebody to scoop you out of it. Right. But then they also give this, like, very specific advice of, like, how you should walk around clubs. Like, head up, shoulders back. Even if a man talks to you, you should be like, oh, I, I better mingle after, like, two or three minutes. Right. It, it's like the advice is simultaneously don't care and care an enormous amount. I'm going to send you another little excerpt. This is from the part of the book where they talk about how you should basically never initiate anything. You should never invite him to anything. You should never be the one who kind of goes out on a limb for the guy. Our dentist friend Pam initiated a friendship with Robert when they met in dental school several years ago by asking him out to lunch. She spoke to him first. Although they later became lovers and even lived together, he never seemed really in love with her, and her insecurity about the relationship never went away. Why would it? She spoke to him first. He recently broke up with her over something trivial. The truth is, he never loved her. <laughs> Had Pam followed the rules, she would have never spoken to Robert or initiated anything in the first place. Had she followed the rules, she might have met someone else who truly wanted her. She would not have wasted time. You can see how they're straddling this line between like, yeah, don't spend time with people who don't treat you well. Mm -hmm. But also it's like, she invited him to lunch and that set the tenor for the entire rest of the like years-long relationship. They're also sort of framing it as if like, if she were following the rules, she would have found another guy who cared about her. But the actual message seems to be if she was following the rules, she could have manipulated Robert into loving her exactly. somehow. <laughs> and also this is also her fault too. Right. So this is the sort of thesis statement of this section of the book where they're talking about how to attract men, how to get men attracted to you. And mm -hmm. we're going we're gonna to dig into this a little bit. So, so uh, the, the big picture issue here that's applicable to many parts of life is there 
Is it just something eternal about dating rules or do they change depending on time and place? Is there something eternal and essential about Christianity or Judaism or Islam? Or does the practice of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam change depending on who's practicing it and at what time period and in what place? So a lot of things that we think of as eternal and uh, just transcendent of time and place are, in fact, highly bound by time and place. They say, it's easy to rationalize women's aggressive behavior in this day and age. Unlike years ago, when women met men at dances and coming out parties and simply waited for one to pick them out of the crowd and start a conversation, today many women are accountants, doctors, lawyers, dentists, and in management positions. They work with men, for men, and men work for them. But even if you're making the same amount of money as a man you're interested in, he must bring up lunch. The premise of the rules is that we never make anything happen, that we trust in the natural order of things, namely mm -hmm. that man pursues women. If he likes you, he'll always approach you. It's hard to accept that, we know. It's also hard waiting for the right one. The one who talks to you first, calls, and basically does most of the work in the beginning of the relationship because he must have you. <sighs> the natural order of things. The natural order of things. This is like a really common trope where like some social, like the social norm in 1995 is that it's increasingly more accepted for women to approach men, right? Mm -hmm. But like they still frame it as if there is a natural order, yes. right? The natural order was the one that emerged from the social norms yes. of the 1950s or whatever for some reason. That, that one's natural. The modern one is somehow. So I moved to California from outside of Sydney, Australia, in 1977. I was 11 years of age, and when I came to California, I noticed the women were a lot more assertive, a lot more aggressive. Still, yeah, boys, boys, men, have to make most of the moves, but uh, women made a lot more, girls made a lot more moves on me in California than they did in Australia. A bastardization of the perfect order that we yes. have previously achieved. Peter, what I hear you saying is, Mike, do you want to tediously explain to me the history of dating norms because you read another book for this podcast? Hmm. That's what I'm hearing you saying. Yeah. And, and yeah, the sure. answer is yes, Peter. The answer is yes. <laughs> so I want to zoom in on this kind of fascinating phrase that they use. It's easy to rationalize women's aggressive behavior in this day and age. <laughs> so for this episode, I read a extremely interesting book called From Front Porch to Backseat, Courtship in 20th Century America by Beth Bailey. Love that title. The place we're going to start is with an anecdote from the book that was allegedly uproarious. Okay. This is a story that went around in the 1920s. She says, one day, the story goes, a young man asked a city girl if he might call on her. We know nothing else about the man or the girl, only that when he arrived, she had her hat on. This is like a hilarious, like, knee-slapping story. <laughs> what this is getting at is the slow shift from the previous norms around dating, which were all based on this, this idea of gentleman callers. That's, like, where we get that term. Uh -huh. All of the dating basically happened in the private sphere. So mm -hmm. if a girl liked you, she would invite you over to her house, and then you'd, like, hang out with her basically in her living room. Mm -hmm. And as opposed to later dating norms, it was mostly controlled by women. So it was often the mothers that were doing this. It was the girls themselves who were deciding which boys they were going to invite over. Mm -hmm. She quotes an advice column from 1909 where a boy writes in and he's like, I really like this girl. Can I ask her out? Mm -hmm. And the sort of Ann Landers type answer is like, no, 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 come on, come on. You've got to wait for her to do it. <laughs> if you want her to invite you over, you can like sneak to one of her friends and be like, hey, can you ask Lucy to ask me over? Mm -hmm. But you could never just like declare interest in a girl. You got to get runes and then make her want <laughs> to invite you over. <laughs> Knock and leave runes. <laughs> so what then starts happening, starting in the 1880s with industrialization, women start entering the workforce. They're exposed to many more men kind of independently of their parents. People are also moving into cities where they have much less living space and they just kind of like can't have people over. Mm -hmm. We also get the invention and the mass adoption of the automobile. There was massive like decades long moral panic about young people having access to cars because that mm -hmm. meant that they would have private space just with each other, right? They would have a way of getting to places away from the watchful eyes of their parents and also a place to have sex, which is like how a lot of people lost their virginity in like the yeah, early yeah. 1900s. Another really big one is the invention 
of kind of mass media, right? We get the penny press, we get large circulation magazines, many of which are like magazines for women. Mm -hmm, we also mm -hmm. get radio and TV and Hollywood, which start establishing the, the script for like normal dating, right? Like dinner and a movie. Uh -huh. And, you know, this takes place over like 60 years and it's, it's a slow and kind of stuttering process. And you don't want to say that anything's like this kind of binary shift. But over time, what this does is it shifts dating from a private activity that takes place in people's homes to a public activity that is happening in, you know, restaurants. Uh -huh. It also becomes much more controlled by men. Mm -hmm. She says in the book, the conventions that grew to govern dating codified women's inequality and ratified men's power. Men asked women out. Women were condemned as aggressive if they expressed interest in a man too directly. Men paid for everything, but often with the implication that women owed sexual favors in return. The dating system required men to always assume control, and women act as men's dependents. So apparently, if a man couldn't afford to take a woman out, she would discreetly give him money before the date, like slip him a little bit of cash so he could take her out and like pay on the date and like maintain this theater of, you know, oh, I'll get the check. Wow. So okay. to return to the hat anecdote, the reason why it is allegedly funny is that the man goes over to her house expecting they're going to like stay in, in the parlor and talk, and she has a hat on indicating she is expecting to go out. Mm -hmm. Like these two things were existing at the same time. Fellas, don't you hate it when you show up to her front porch and she's wearing a hat? <laughs> but then what's so interesting is obviously all of these norms are completely fucking fake. Right. There's, there's nothing like biological about dinner and a movie you could easily like go on a walk for your first date this is something you hear in like conservative political discussions too right where yeah, oh, yeah. they're talking about returning to like a natural order by doing x y and z and it's like there is no fucking natural order yeah it's all fake all of these norms are constantly evolving and shifting exactly and the previous order was also fake actually i, I disagree the one true god-given order is where you have to hang out with her parents in a parlor <laughs> texting my boys like i'm crying well i do think there is a natural order in pretty much all societies men have to be more assertive in pretty much all societies men are more aggressive in all Virtually all societies, men are more, more violent. In almost all societies, women devote themselves more to raising the kids than men do. So there is there are natural tendencies to order. It's not like they're just all these things are just made up in every society. <laughs> they're giving me more tea what's also really interesting about the creation of these like totally fake norms is that people immediately start chalking them up to biology yeah in the book she says right so people who are gay or trans or left-wing activists they are much more incentivized to talk about how all, all norms are just uh, invented dependent on time and place uh, conservatives believe that there are eternal tendencies such as that men tend to be more aggressive more assertive more, more violent than women. Women tend to be much more oriented towards things that uh, live. Men tend to be more oriented towards abstract concerns. Crass these strictures with advice on dating etiquette from the 40s and 50s. An advice book for men and women warns that girls who try to usurp the right of boys to choose their own dates will ruin a good dating career. Mm. Fair or not? So I moved to Los Angeles March 31, 1994. It was two months after the Northridge earthquake. Uh, the 405 freeway was still busted up. We had to take side side routes. The 10 freeway was closed and would remain closed for another two or three months. So California was, Los Angeles was still recovering from that massive Northridge earthquake. I remain fascinated by earthquakes. I love to read books on them. I love to watch documentaries on earthquakes. It's inevitable that, you know, a massive one is going to roll through Southern California and render life essentially impossible. So impossible for weeks, months would make uh, Southern California uninhabited. So am I scared for the big one or have I accepted my fate? Maybe both, right? There's no way you can live on Earth where there are no reasons to be afraid, all right? So Southern California, we've got earthquakes and fires, but everywhere you go, it, it has its problems. Rustin says, what would a gay guy know about dating a woman? Dating is a lot more nuanced for a heterosexual. We just can't line up at the next glory hall. Ooh. 
It's the way of life. From the Stone Age, when men chased and captured their women, comes the yen of a boy to do the pursuing. You will control your impatience, therefore, and respect the time-honored custom of boys to take the first step. So this is this is all about honoring an, a literally ancient time when men captured and presumably raped women. Mm -hmm. That's the norm we're trying to adhere to implicitly here. When life expectancy was like 27. Right. And she points out in the book that like even in the 40s and 50s, people would write columns being like, this is fake. Like in living memory, we didn't have this. This is not how our moms dated. Right, and right. On some level, it's a little bit obvious that like, yeah, the, the shit that they're saying in the rules in 1995 is like, yeah, horrific dating advice to women in the 1940s and 1950s. But I read another really interesting article called The More Things Change, The Rules and Late 18th Century Conduct Books for Women by mm. Barbara Darby, who says this whole thing of like women these days are too aggressive. People were literally saying this in like the 1770s. <laughs> like she quotes letters from Erasmus Darwin. It's like we're basically in this constant state of fretting about how like women these days, right? They're just too aggressive. And envisioning an era where everyone was just like a little more prim and proper and, and upright. Return with a V. Yes. <laughs> so the next section of the book is about how to act on the first date. How should you behave to ensure that you get to the second date with this gentleman? Okay. I'm going to send you some of their tips and tricks. It's too late for you, but it's not too late for the ladies out there. Now that you look the part, you must act the part. Men like women. Don't act like a man, even if you are head of your own company. <laughs> Let him open the door. Be feminine. Don't tell sarcastic jokes. Don't be, sarcastic. Don't be a loud, knee-slapping, hysterically funny girl. This is okay when you're alone with your girlfriends. But when you're with a man you like, be quiet and mysterious. Act ladylike. Cross your legs and smile. <laughs> Don't talk so much. Wear black sheer stockings and hike up your skirt to entice the opposite sex. You might feel offended by these suggestions and argue that this will suppress your intelligence or vivacious personality. You may feel that you won't be able to be yourself, but men will love it. Men love it when you're not funny. <laughs> yeah, you might think that I'm suppressing your personality, but what if I told you men would like it? Yeah, but instrumentally, <laughs> it will be effective. There's a weird thing here where it's like, how are you setting yourself apart as like a human being, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If every woman is just like black stockings, not talking much. So back to Rustin's question, like what would a gay man know about uh, heterosexual love? Well, he can read a book on it, all right? He, he read a book. A classic book from 1989, From Front Porch to Backseat, Courtship in 20th Century America. And I think the compelling nature of this podcast uh, just speaks for itself. Yeah, these are lefties. Uh, one of the co-hosts is gay. That may not be your thing, but they still bring a compelling podcast, an interesting podcast, an above-average IQ podcast. And that's all I've got in me for today. I will talk to you guys later. Bye-bye.